time to talk about inclusion. I hope you all feel included. I run a very inclusive workshop. It's very important to me, of course. I hope my ESG score goes up. <clears throat> so inclusion is the third piece of the DEI triangle. The, it's, in a sense, kind of integral with diversity. But if you had to pick one of the three that they would throw out, it would be inclusion. Um, the idea with inclusion actually that we're going to cover is that inclusion is sort of this lever to make it so that diversity is not passive but rather proactive. So it's kind of the proactive, it's the tool to make all of this stuff proactive from the perspective of whatever organization. Because um, if you're not being proactive enough, you won't be inclusive. Um, so it's, it's, it's a moral lever actually. But we'll also see that it's used to justify censorship and purges. It is, in fact, and we'll discuss this at length, the um, mechanism by which the idea of repressive tolerance from Herbert Marcuse's neo-Marxism of the 1960s uh, is being affected in, in actual you know, organizations and institutions and across society. The point of inclusion, of course, is to create a welcoming environment where nobody feels like they're being excluded or nobody feels like they're out of place. You don't have to sit in the audience and feel self-conscious because of who you actually are. You're included in what's going on. Maybe it goes further and is made to, it's set up to make you feel like you belong. So nobody ever feels like a weird outsider. That's the rationale behind the idea of inclusion. And it's something that I think most people, probably since about at least the 1970s in the United States, have more or less just thought, yeah, of course. Right, and so again, we're seeing a concept that I think, I don't want to make it as explicit, I think the diversity industry started out kind of ham-fisted noble ideas and got co-opted. Uh, equity started out very progressive and became f further redirected into neo-Marxism. Um, inclusion was just kind of this no-brainer thing that nobody was taking a look at that was being used as a lever by people who were using it in a specialized way. And so the point that, that they're using to make it all work, where diversity was largely being used, but it'll also be used this way, for, for um, the idea of uh, avoiding liability in workplaces or whatever. Inclusion also gives some protection against discrimination liability, but uh, it's more to produce the opposite of a hostile working environment. It is to produce psychological safety. And if you actually look into the literature around inclusion, they will often refer to psychological safety or safety in general, and that people can't do their best work in environments that aren't psychologically safe. Uh, my own research before I got all into this, when Peter and I were writing How to Have Impossible Conversations, we have sections on, on psychological safety and the importance of psychological safety to changing your mind. John Cleese, if you've never seen it, the, the Monty Python character, or the, I mean, not character, um, uh, actor, really, I think he was the lead of, of Monty Python, had a talk maybe in the 90s. It's on YouTube, unless YouTube's decided it's you know, too dangerous and has taken it down. But I've watched it a couple of times. It's about half an hour. It's on creativity. And you can tell by listening between the lines that what he's saying is the creativity to be truly funny for him that comes from creating an environment of psychological safety. People can throw out the joke. They can test the joke. And some of them hit the wall and fall flat. And that's okay. And maybe they throw out 10 jokes and one of them makes it into a skit. And 
you know, the funny walk made it and all the stupid things you never hear about. But he says what actually generates the ability to be creative behind closed doors is that you know you're not going to get ostracized for putting out some new idea even if it's kind of stupid. It's kind of the ideal psychological safety brainstorming is the heart of creativity. And so the inclusion movement as it has developed is hacking that. Psychological safety is actually required to have a functional workplace, a healthy workplace culture, a creative interactive workplace where you're actually going to start Every workplace that has multiple employees is bringing people together. There's going to be collaboration. There's going to be those benefits of diversity, even from one individual to another. And all of that actually is realized through the process of enabling and creating psychological safety in which people can do what they need to do. This has been perverted to a phrase you've probably heard, that you can bring your whole self to work. That's an inclusion initiative. Um, in some sectors, like in special education, that's kind of important with how inclusion made it into the educational sphere, inclusion was an answer to how do you deal with the fact that putting people in a separate, I said this the other night, separate classroom is segregation, but to integrate them into the classroom doesn't work. And so when you have, you're caught between the, the pinchers of, of integration and segregation, and you have to figure out something that works, inclusion is some kind of a, cooked up means that they're going to use to try to say, well, we'll have our cake and eat it too with this situation. And so the way that that ends up in operation is we're going to now integrate, but we're going to change the entire group now to accommodate the difference. And so you can also see how inclusion is from kind of its very earliest manifestations, really a call toward collectivism. And we're going to get a little bit into that more later, but I just bring up that this was really pioneered within the field of disability studies, which is why it's no surprise that it showed up in special education uh, work and research. And the kind of architect of what we're what, of this model was named Michael Oliver. He's detailed in cynical theories. If you want to read a little bit more, um, and in the 1980s he put forth what was known as the social model of disability. And the social model of disability disability was this idea that we need to shift responsibility from or for a disability from the disabled individual to society to accommodate that and there's this i think there's a really rich and interesting discussion about the limits of that argument because i think it is on its face plain that if a society that can afford it can do some work in that direction and that it's a net benefit for everybody and it's humane and is what we should want in an advanced society that we can be proud of, but on the other hand, it's easy also for that to become an access point for something more manipulative. Um, so again, what we're going to end up having to deal with but is, is a clarification of meaning in terminology. That's the entire game, whether it's with these critical theories of identity, identity Marxism or whatever, or whether it's DEI more specifically, it's even with ESG. They get to define what environmental responsibility, social responsibility, and governance responsibility means. It's all linguistic, what do you mean by is kinds of discussions. So we need to disambiguate between the idea of welcoming inclusion, a regular old school inclusion that people think that, they, that they're following so that we can have discernment from critical inclusion or structural inclusion. Sometimes this is referred to as social inclusion. We could say it's critical social inclusion when it adopts neo-Marxism. These are all just kind of tentative terms. They don't exist in the literature. I'm just throwing out words that you can latch on to whatever ones you like. But critical seems to be one that I think has the most rhetorical use. 
And so I'm gonna to veer toward calling it critical inclusion versus just inclusion um, or welcoming inclusion if you wanted to. So what's the difference between those? Do you analyze it in terms of power dynamics or not? That's the difference. Are you trying to genuinely make a space where you're going at, where, where, where you're not doing anything intentionally offensive versus now you're going to go out of your way to make sure that the manifestations of power through incidental or unconscious actions are also struck down. Um, that's the big difference. The first of these is obviously beneficial. I just talked about the thing. John, if you you really should watch the talk with John Cleese on creativity, it's the most compelling thing I think I've ever seen in my entire life to argue for the the spaces that are going to be functional, creative, and productive, having a strong degree of psychological safety and figuring out how to solve the question or answer the question of how do you get psychological safety in that environment. Um, so I strongly recommend. I mean, John Cleese is always a joy to listen to. Anyway, um, he's British, so he has a nice accent as it happens, at least for us on this side. You guys, you're like, no, he's from Downing Street, or you know, whatever it is. <laughs> he lives a sixth house down. I understand, I get it, I get it, I get it. The second, though, critical inclusion is very dangerous because it becomes a justification for totalitarianism and repressive tolerance. Repressive tolerance is just kind of a fancy name for totalitarianism, actually. Um, so Herbert Marcuse, the great anti-totalitarian neo-Marxist, was indeed actually a raging totalitarian. And repressive tolerance, if you have not read that, you don't have to. I did a podcast series in four parts, and you can listen to me read it to you. Or you can read it on your flight home because it's short enough to read for yourself. It is a shockingly totalitarian document the first time you read it. It's eye-opening if you haven't read it. I'll read a little bit of it. I'll read the punchline that's buried at the end to you before we're done today. Um, inclusion, under, especially under the critical uh, inclusion model ultimately means something not terribly useful though. It means lack of exclusion. And so there's already this linguistic problem happening is you can't positively define inclusion. It's not excluding. It's, it's defined negatively. And that makes it a, a kind of a fertile ground to talk about a thing in airy-fairy language that can then be interpreted subjectively by the people who end up in power once it's implemented, because it's very difficult to talk about in positive terms. What it ultimately means is not excluded, and that opens the door to what the question of what causes exclusion. And the critical, or the neo-Marxist, or identity Marxist, however you want to put it, answer to that question is always power dynamics. Systemic power dynamics that may not involve any particular individual, but that by default also involve every individual, usually outside of their conscious awareness. So it is the shifting of inclusion into the nature of whether power dynamics exist that are causing people to not feel like they can bring their whole self to work, which might include their activism, their bad mood, their emotional distress, whatever it happens to be. That's all part of your whole self. No shut up and do your job. You know, no professionalism. Professionalism is a hallmark of white supremacy culture for this reason. It prevents people who want to be outside of professionalism to be able to bring their whole self to work. And otherwise you're excluding part of my self. And so you can see how these things become levers very quickly to change community policy or company policy or 
Slack channel policy or whatever, which is their favorite, one of their favorite little things to do because they can control how people talk, how people interact with one another. They can really lead an organization around by the nose. The rationale, of course, is to create a non-discriminatory environment. That's the good rationale, but when you change this into the critical perspective, it's to create a hyper non-discriminatory on their terms environment, which will foster diversity. And of course, do you mean diversity or critical diversity? Well, in their case, where it's critical, the they is always, for me, critical theorists of one stripe or another. Um, for them, it's going to be critical diversity. For everybody else, it's going to be probably something like individual diversity or expertise or what I called functional diversity last night. Um, what they want is a hyper non-discriminatory space that basically excludes all the possible power dynamics that might make a protected class member feel excluded, even if they happen to be paranoids or neurotics or grifters who know that they can just say the thing and either win the meeting in the moment, which is a psychopathic trait, or uh, that they can manipulate and gain power or advantage or whatever, which is a more psychopathic trait. So it enables those um, personality disorders and uh, psychopathic traits that, that are often at the bottom of how all of this ends up operating if you are willing to dig down and tell the truth about it. To give you an idea about the link between diversity and inclusion, because the goal of inclusion is to foster the diverse environment and the goal of creating this diverse, inclusive environment is to achieve equity. Um, I'll read to you from the Washington State uh, equity task force document that they presented to the governor. Inclusion, they say, means intentionally designed active and ongoing engagement with people that ensures opportunities and pathways for participation in all aspects of group, organization, or community, including decision-making processes. Inclusion is not a natural consequence of diversity. There must be intentional and consistent efforts to create and sustain a participative environment. Inclusion refers to how groups show that people are valued as respected members of the group, team, organization, or community. Inclusion is often created through progressive, consistent actions to expand, include, and share. So the word include and inclusive was frequently used in the definition of inclusive. How are you inclusive? You include. <laughs> but what you see is that there's this relationship between diversity and inclusion where diversity itself is not enough because you might be able to just put people together who are different and then you don't make it so that the people who have been traditionally or in, other, in another sense excluded, you don't go out of your way to forward, center, or advance their perspectives. So when you look at the decolonizing the curriculum movement where they're now going to take out Shakespeare and replace it with a slew of you know, writers from different minority perspectives, as it might have been said five years ago, what they're talking about now is this exact kind of thing, is we, ha we have to center the ideas that have been excluded. So the inclusion isn't just about people, it's also about ideas. How do, we how do we include other ways of knowing? How do we include perspectives that have been marginalized? How do we find the wisdom that we've been leaving out, which is often going to be highly caricatured and stereotyped, uh, oversimplified stuff that some white woman with an education degree decided is what's representative of a native tribe in the Pacific Northwest or whatever. And so now we're going to count that way in math class or something. So in other words, when we get to this equity document in 2020 presented to the governor of Washington, 
we're fostering critical diversity. We're looking at the idea that there are power dynamically excluded views and individuals who now have to, we have to make up for that by forwarding and centering their ideas in an active and participative environment. You have to go out of your way to make the diversity functional according to that thing we heard last night from the Supreme Court cases where uh, diversity on its own isn't enough. They said you have to have a critical mass number of people in order for that diversity, the benefit of the diversity to manifest. Otherwise, the diversity won't act diverse. Inclusion is the to make diversity act diverse. But when you're in critical diversity and critical inclusion, what that means is you're forwarding the critical theory ideas and you're trying to suppress the not critical theory ideas. And that's the way that inclusion is going to work. Um, everything in critical diversity and critical inclusion is going to be analyzed through power dynamics that are rooted now, it didn't have to be this way, but are now analyzed through identity Marxism, which is that evolution of neo-Marxism, which is an evolution of cultural Marxism, which is an evolution of old school Marxism. The idea is that the power dynamics exclude. If white supremacy is in the room, somebody of a minority race may not feel comfortable speaking up. If heteronormativity is assumed in the room, somebody who is gay might feel uncomfortable, psychologically uncomfortable, psychological safety is not present. Therefore, the power dynamic itself is exclusive. And it's easy to think of examples, and they would trot these examples out in a training that are legitimate. If this was a room and we were all making gay jokes, blah, 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 it does stand to reason that in fact, any gay people present might feel uncomfortable. They might feel like maybe we should keep it quiet, maybe we shouldn't. Unless, of course, it's the gay people leading the gay jokes because they tell the best ones. <laughs> it's just true. They're really funny. So what they're trying to do is take the idea of psychological safety and really, really kick it up to a very high level but in the process because they're using this ham-fisted understanding of power dynamics to do it they're actually creating psychologically hostile environments. And we talked about some of these examples of real diversity trainings where, again, this is an inclusion exercise. I can't say it happened in your workplace. I don't know what happened in your workplace unless you told me. But it happens in some because I get messages all the time where, for example, we, take, we find out somebody in the office is gay. We sit them down in a chair up in front of a room like this with a facilitator who's going to feed you the power dynamics, the heteronormativity, cisnormativity, whatever the relevant variable is, this whole little, little speech about the power dynamic understanding, the identity Marxism understanding of, of homosexuality or queerness or whatever it happens to be, and then we're going to go around the room and every one of you is going to take your turn saying, oh, I've always thought you guys were weirdos. Oh yeah, I make gay jokes all the time. I don't want to be gay, you know, whatever. And it, <laughs> everybody confesses it. And then if people who don't, you, well, don't you feel defensive about this? And then, like I said, this was a real example somebody reached out to me with. Uh, it ended up driving him out of his dream job because for literally about a month and a half to two months afterwards, people came to his office every single day asking him weird questions about his sex life, literally including like, how do you do it? You know, what's it look like? Very inappropriate workplace stuff. Meanwhile, you also, besides the fact that now he knows half of his, half of his colleagues are squicked out by him, so he doesn't have good relationships with those people anymore, he's got this problem on his hands. You see the same thing happening in that racial environment where it's everybody's now going to confess how they've secretly been racist. I guess we're going to clear the air and we're all going to admit how racist we are and now things are going to work better. Well, but what actually happens is it's like, man, I didn't know that John thought that way about me. 
and now you've actually created hostility across that. When you start to put in community guidelines and inclusion guidelines, people know they're gonna get in trouble for creating a critical inclusion hostile environment. So you're gonna, you said the wrong thing at the water cooler, you said something that you didn't even intend it to be taken that way, but somebody took it that way, it was a microaggression or whatever else, and now you're in trouble, which that creates, a, that's the opposite of psychological safety, that's psychological uh, hostility. It's actually, you're now afraid to speak up, and we see this playing out. People are afraid to advance ideas, lest they be considered, you know, having accidentally said something racist or sexist or whatever. People are afraid to mentor one another. So if you actually have a system where there is some illegitimate program that's made it so straight white men are more often in positions of power than not, you now have those people disproportionately high up in the, in the environment who are stuck into an inclusive environment that makes them uncomfortable mentoring. People who are, let's say that there was actually exclusion of women from a workplace until very recently. And so now women are proportionally low on the totem pole and men, I, mean, I guess you can't say it's a microaggression. Is my okay totem pole? Um, <laughs> I know, get my whips, I gotta flog myself. Um, women are, are proportionally lower in the, in the hierarchy the road up is through mentorship very often. But if the men think they're gonna get me too by mentoring a woman by, behind a closed door, and maybe it's legitimate and there's something that was uncomfortable that was sad or inappropriate, maybe it's exaggerated, and maybe it was straight up fabricated by, it turns out women can be psychopaths too, the number of mentorships goes down, and the data have borne this out. The number of mentorships cross-racial and cross-sex have diminished since these policies have been put into place. People are clustering up into safer groups that then they get accused, oh, you're in a, you've created like the, all the white people go to lunch together or whatever and they don't, want the, they don't want the Latinos sitting with them because they're racist. But it's not because they're racist, it's because they're gonna, gonna get accused of being racist and have an HR disaster on their hands because this is creating a psychologically hostile environment. It erects double standards it gives the, innate, the, the ability to do censorship and purges. You can purge people who said the wrong thing, even if it was an accident. Maybe you got in an elevator, it's a true story. And somebody gets in and they say, what floor are you going to? And the guy just at a scientific conference mutters the lingerie floor or the, the you know, whatever. And some woman in there goes berserk and the scientist doesn't have a job anymore. You know, um, that's a purge. That's how you get rid of somebody who's problematic who's against the program maybe, or who you just want to get rid of, or who has a high level position that you want. Hello all CEOs, it will be you sooner or later. They want your leadership role. Censorship is easy. There's all kinds of things you can't say, because then you're gonna have a trip to HR and you might be purged. What this creates then is an incentive structure to be offended. People lower in the hierarchy can gain power by claiming offense. People higher in the hierarchy can manipulate people lower in the hierarchy by appealing to or claiming offense. When you weaponize offense, you have a big problem on your hands because offense is in the eye of the beholder. It is a subjective determination. We've all heard cases, I said something about the gay jokes a second ago, where you've got, you know, your gay friend or whoever who thinks that gay jokes are the funniest jokes ever and that's the favorite kind, and they, they, they take it, they love it, they, they're, it's not a problem, but then you have 
this idea. So the same joke, though, sets somebody else completely off, and you've got a problem. That's a subjective standard. And when you put the power to cause major, major consequences, like being fired from your job in the hands of subjectivity, and especially when you empower the idea of somebody being able to take offense, you've really got a problem brewing on your hands. And again, inclusion training is partly designed to train people, especially microaggressions training. It's learning to figure out how a slight wasn't a little deal, it was a big deal. It wasn't a small conversation with the other guy like, hey, um, I know you didn't mean it, but that kind of hurt my feelings or whatever. Uh, can we talk it out, go get a beer or whatever? It's, it's a shift it from that to now it's an HR problem. It's a microaggression, you're creating a hostile working environment for protected classes. Um, and like I said, it also leads, these inclusion trainings lead to awkward, how did I phrase it? Awkward revelations of domain inappropriate information. The gay man's sex life is not anybody's business at work, and it never should have been. And considering the, an inclusion training to force that to be a topic that everybody's gonna sit through, to take the gay workers and sit them down in one section, or the black workers and sit them in one section, and have everybody talk about racism and sexism and homophobia and whatever else. And to, it, again, I said this earlier, imagine not having the, we go around the room, how are you homophobic? How are you, have you been homophobic? What gay jokes have you ever told? And we get to you and you're like, I don't have anything. And it's like, you're lying. You know, imagine being the person who doesn't have a story to tell. And, you know, as the room goes around, do people's stories get bigger and bigger and bigger so they can kind of one-up the person who spoke before? This, this is an entire catastrophe. This is the worst possible way you could implement sensitivity training that I can possibly think of. I can't think of a worse way to implement it. And this is unfortunately what happens when you take um, people who studied critical theory and made them educators and then put them in charge of designing uh, HR curricula and training programs. They don't have a profound connection to reality and how things actually work. Um, in the institutional context, how did we get here? Institutional context, it mostly arose through schools and special education and in corporations by needing an, an accelerant to add to the, to the diversity program. So like I said, in the 1980s is when both of this happened is when you had these, this, how do we deal with special education segregation problem in schools? Well, let's come up with this goal of inclusion. And then you had, what was his name? Uh, Edwin, Edward Edwin Griggs. Uh, who I just learned about in Diversity Officer Magazine, so I don't know his work well, who was an MBA who came up with this um, program. He, it's credited to him that he coined the phrase diversity and inclusion. Uh, and why? Because diversity on its own, as we just read, is not enough. You have to accelerate it with inclusion. It's not enough to allow anybody who wants to be in, in. That's diversity in a kind of simple sense. You have to go out of your way to make them feel included and welcomed to the point of including and welcoming their ideas even when those ideas are completely inappropriate. Here's a great example of an inappropriate idea that has to be included under this rubric. My entrance into this, there are some stories that happened before in kind of the talking to people realms, but what I re why did I write those freaking hoax papers? Well, once upon a time, there was a paper in 2016 that came out about feminist glaciology. I'm not kidding. And it had lots of National Science Foundation money behind it, $800,000 on a grant. The paper was not, it was not $800,000 for this paper. There was a, the research team was funded, and this was one of the papers they wrote within that project. And what they argue throughout that paper is virtually unbelievable. Um, if you have any background in science, turns out this, what they're called the studies of science and technology are the critical theory studies of science and technology, and they're completely batshit. 
And so what this actually argues is that glaciology is a sexist and racist field because it does not include feminist perspectives and indigenous perspectives on ice. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So the indigenous ones you can kind of get, but they include several examples. One indigenous tribe, for example, believes somewhere in Nepal, or I forget which where, uh, but in the mountains somewhere, believes that there is male ice and female ice. The male ice is the dirty gray kind that doesn't give off much water, and the pretty blue ones that people want to go look at that are dripping with meltwater, those are the female ones. It stands to reason. <laughs> but apparently there's this whole theory about how the, how the glaciers mate. And there's literally a section in the paper about why glaciology doesn't include glacier sex. And I exaggerate not at all. There's another indigenous belief somewhere in the world near a glacier that if you fry pork fat too close to the glacier, the glacier can smell it and then will move. And so they actually, they actually take this superstition to a glaciologist. In the paper, they describe this encounter. In his office, they knock on the door or whatever, and they ask him, why do you only concern yourself with, with physical models of flow and viscosity or whatever when examining how glaciers move? Why don't you incorporate the bacon fat thing or pork fat thing or whatever? And the guy just closed the door in their face. And he, they said that this was further proof of just how exclusionary to new ideas glaciology is. Another example, and I won't drag these out, but they get pretty, pretty ridiculous. Another example was actually that we have satellite f photographs of ice on top of mountains, uh, you know, in the Antarctic or the Arctic. What's the retreat? What's the, the advance of the ice? We have all these satellite photos. Well, it turns out, apparently, some feminist paints pictures of aerial views of glaciers on mountains. Why are her paintings not included in glaciology, is the argument of the paper. I exaggerate, not at all. Why are her paintings not put alongside the satellites? And what answer do they give is because science adopts a universalizing frame that believes you can go to space and use a satellite and view the world from the God's eye view from nowhere that doesn't have bias. That's their words, the God's eye view from nowhere. The one position outside of it all, the objective position that doesn't have any bias. But it turns out that that place exists nowhere at all. So they try to position it as though it's a ridiculous fiction to strive for objectivity. And what better way to fix that than to do glaciological studies on paintings done by a feminist, which I bet you have to buy for several thousand dollars a pop to study them or something like that. And it, it, the examples get worse. They actually do. Art projects involving glacial meltwater. A phone line with the phone number in the paper tapped into a glacier so you can hear it make noises and you can call the glacier on the phone and listen to it. Why is this not part of glaciology? I'm not even saying this activism has no place. If people want to do the activism, great. Their claim is that glaciology is fundamentally exclusive if it doesn't include that as well, if the science doesn't include those ideas. That's their argument. That's a 2016 paper that was in a relatively high impact factor geography journal. I think it's Progress in Human Geography, if I recall correctly, but it's been a little while since I looked that up, so you can check it yourself. Google, or no, we duck, we use the duck one. The, 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 the feminist glaciology paper, you'll find it. You can download it yourself. You can read it um, properly 
crazy, but that's the idea of inclusion. We have to include these other perspectives or else the thing is chauvinistic. And what do we have to do as a result? Well, we have to get rid of these old masculinist, exclusive, chauvinist glaciologists and replace them with feminist glaciologists who are open to these other perspectives. In other words, it becomes an extortion racket to remove people that they don't want from positions of power and put party favorable people in the positions of power. In other words, it's a form of scientific, in this case, entryism, academic entryism more broadly, or in your workplace, just regular old corporate entryism. So this is what they were asking to include under inclusion. And so the people who have to be included and therefore have to be protected from ever taking offense are the people who think that way. That's critical inclusion. It's not let's make sure nobody's being intentionally or even you know, negligently offensive against some identity category. And even if they were, it, it, the shift is from let the individuals work it out which is a kind of a dignity-based model to the, the victim-based model now where we're gonna now appeal to an empowered third party like HR to resolve the conflict rather than two adults being able to speak and say, you know, that thing you said in the meeting, I don't wanna make a scene. I don't know if you realize, but that was awkward, you know, and it makes it weird for me because here's why. Can we go talk it out like adults? And it switches it to a very infantilizing model now where mom and HR has to come in and slap big brother and you know, put him in the corner so that little brother or little sister or whatever can do whatever she wants. Within the learning environment, we weren't just including ideas, we're also, you know, within the special education thing. Um, a big part of this actually was, was amplified by the No Child Left Behind. This is where a lot of that integration and mainstreaming, so that's early 2000s, I guess. Uh, a lot of the integration and within the educational environment was happening and, and inclusion got put on a rocket ride in order to accommodate that now uh, decision that was made uh, by the Department of Education and, and President Bush at the time. And of course then scope creep happens to get to the point where now we're ex we have to include feminist glaciers and bacon fat, I mean glacier movement or whatever, uh, or else you're a big problem. So this is really how all of this kind of crept in. You kind of have a sense of what it is now. And again, it's not, hey, I'm glad to see all of you all. Let's not be jerks or whatever. And if something comes up, you know, try to resolve it amongst yourselves. But in the worst, last case scenario, we have HR. It's now you're on constant eggshells. HR is getting called. Your kid's getting jerked out of school or whatever. Next thing you know. And again, like I said, this shift in mentality comes from what I said was the social model of disability. Social model of disability was, was again, 1980 so, or so, Michael Oliver, he's a British guy. Previously, the models of disability were individual and medical, the two other models. The, the medical model of disability says that disability is a medical issue. The individual model says individuals are sometimes disabled and it's up to them to you know, do what they can. The social model of disability that Michael Oliver forwarded was the idea that the society itself has a responsibility to meet them at least part way. That's the original nice conception of the social model of disability. And I think that all three of those perspectives have validity as long as we don't get weird with them. It is a medical issue and it's up to the individual disabled person to decide whether they want it treated as such or to, to live with it. That's an individual choice. Um, 
you do have to, everybody has limitations. We all have limitations. And we all have to learn how to live with those and do what we can with what we've got as individuals. But on the other hand, when there's a clear barrier to access, for instance, if you're in a wheelchair and you can't see over something or you can't get up the stairs, creating, putting the, the onus of responsibility on the, in, the environment or the, the society around you to make some accommodations, reasonable accommodations, seems like a reasonable thing to do. And I think it was an advancement for society to adopt some perspectives in the social model of disability. I don't want to give you some impression that I'm just like this, you know, get rid of all, you know, no more handicap access or whatever. It is nothing like that. I think that this was a great advancement. I think it's very humane. I think it's very important. I think it expands the range of talent that you can bring into the to the economy and into the society, uh, into different spaces. People can enjoy li their lives. It is, again, the question though is, when is it reasonable and when is it not? What happened very quickly after the social model was brought into the picture is the social model was made crazy. The social model of disability very rapidly changed, at least by the second edition of Michael Oliver's book, to where now the social model of disability was that it is not a person who happens to have a disability, it is society is disabling them. You're born with missing an arm, let's say, or whatever it is, but we live in a two-arm normative world and society is disabling you by not accommodating you as a one-armed person. You wouldn't be disabled if society was built for one-armed and two-armed people everywhere you go. So society is the thing to blame. The system is the thing that's made you disabled. Being blind isn't a disability, except that society isn't built around blind people too. And I mean totally. So in other words, the social model of disability shifted to it's all society's responsibility to fix disability, and not just that, because it is society itself not being sufficiently accommodating that causes the fact that the, the blindness or missing a limb or whatever else would not be a disability if society were organized completely differently. And there's these really strange videos that I've actually watched on YouTube that are kind of propaganda for the social model of disability where they have this you know, fantasy thought experiment world where the whole society was built for people in wheelchairs and they try to make, and it's super awkward and doesn't really work, but they try to make it out where how inconvenienced people who can walk would be in such a world because all the doorways are lower and the counters are really low and think of how, it's very kind of cartoonish um, in terms of what it's presenting, but they try to make this point. So now it's a society, the system itself is completely misarranged, and that's what causes disability. And so inclusion, taking this line of thought, is that the entire situation, whether it's the school, whether it's the workplace or whatever, has to bend itself around the least access, I don't know the right phrasing for this, the person who has the least amount of access. You have to bend everything around that. But in practice, because so much of it boils down to what offended somebody or what created a hostile feeling for them or a discomfort for them at work where they couldn't bring their whole self to work, as it were, the idea now is that the entire organization, entity, society, whatever, has to orient itself around the most offendable person. But again, this is why I said you have a huge problem on your hands when this is the case. That's subjective. I can sit here right now and complain and complain and complain and complain and complain. And every time you try to fix it, I can tell you why your fix wasn't good enough. You can't actually satisfy somebody who doesn't want to be satisfied. 
And I mean that very literally. If they do not want to be, think of the power you're giving to people who will never be satisfied with anything you do if this is the principle that you adopt. One person who just has something off and cannot be satisfied whatsoever, if you take this to its full tilt understanding, the entire corporation of 15,000 employees has to be reorganized to deal with the one person who will never be happy no matter what you do. That's an extreme, those numbers probably don't play out anywhere in reality, but that's the extreme vision of what this looks like because they're just going to keep claiming offense, keep claiming offense, keep claiming offense. And like I said, it comes back to what is the reasonable accommodation that the group owes to somebody? When does it become unreasonable? And when we look at the either neo-Marxist, but especially the postmodern philosophy that's infused by the time we get to the present woke movement, the you could boil postmodernism down to a simple statement, which is there's no such thing as a reasonable person. There is no reasonable standard. Such a thing is just an imposition of power. That is postmodernism in a nutshell. There is no reasonable, what we call reasonable is an imposition of power. That's all of Michel Foucault in a sentence. It's all of uh, Lyotard, where he's talking about legitimation by paralogy in a sentence. There is no reasonable. There's only power posing as reason. That's postmodernism. So when you bring that into the picture, you have no line at which you say, we've made reasonable enough accommodations, you have to deal with it. The perpetually offended, the perpetually aggrieved become massively empowered. The resentful become empowered over the responsible. Look at the breakdown that's gonna cause. And if you look at it from a psychological perspective, especially in like addiction medicine, you know that that's enablement. At some point you are now enabling, not helping. You're not accommodating something, you're enabling somebody to not take responsibility where they could and be reasonably expected to do so. That's what crept in through the line of thinking. I don't want to blame Michael Oliver or disability. I don't want to say, oh, this was a nefarious thing. That line of thinking came into the world under the social model of disability through the, the, the arguments about including this in mainstreaming uh, special education in the schools, especially under No Child Left Behind, there's this line of thought became kind of part and parcel of how we have to think about inclusion. Meanwhile, you have these neo-Marxists talking about everything being power dynamics and dragging that in, like Diversity Officer Magazine said, through things like white awareness. Whites have to be constantly aware of how they're, by their mere presence, by the way they speak, by the fact that they want to use full sentences or whatever other racist thing that, that Patricia Katz, or sorry, Judith Katz wrote down, they're excluding people who don't want to be that way. In the equity task force meeting in the state of Washington, they literally have this whole digression where somebody comes in late. This whole digression, this is an astonishing video. Somebody comes in late and they, they sit down and something, you know, somebody says something to them, you kind of catch them up to speed or whatever, they come in late to the meeting, and this woman and the task force starts talking. She sounds like Kimberly Crenshaw, but she's not. And she starts talking, and she's like, wait, wait, if this was South Africa, if this was South Africa, what we would do is stop the meeting, because he came in late. When somebody comes in late, we'd be like, how is your family? How's everything going? You know, here's all the things we talked about. We'd fully catch them up before we progress, even if it takes half an hour. And then somebody says, this kind of devolves, this whole discussion about whether or not they should actually continue with the meeting or just talk to this guy. Devolves, remember this is a state task force. This is taxpayer money running this thing. It kind of devolves and then this, finally this other guy speaks up and he says, now I know it's the voice of white supremacy coming out of my mouth, but I think we should move to vote on the agenda. 
And then they have this whole argument about how voting on an agenda is a white supremacist move, staying on a schedule and being punctual is a white supremacist move. There should be no schedule because not all cultures need schedules. And it's like, holy crap, they just reinvented black people time. That's what they did, which is a racist trope. But they're, that's what they want to integrate. And you have to, because otherwise it's not inclusive. It's a very dysfunctional kind of situation. You can also appeal back to that DSA, Democratic Socialists of America meeting that went viral. I think there's been two of them now, but I don't know if it's the same one I saw twice because they're sort of all the same, where they're trying to do things and it's point of personal privilege, something, something about my narcissism, point of personal privilege, something, something about my narcissism, point of personal privilege, and they literally can't enact, they have their crazy radical agenda and they can't do it because everybody who tries to do anything functional gets cut off by somebody saying that they haven't felt included enough. They didn't feel like they belonged enough on the point of personal privilege. It's a completely dysfunctional thing. So when you bring this inclusion model, not only do you empower complainers or the perpetually offended or the perpetually aggrieved, but you also adopt practices that are going to squander resources like crazy to the effect of making the people who are, I, I mean, like the lady in the equity task force meeting, I don't know what was in her head, but the feeling I get is that she wanted to feel important to say something. So we're just indulging her bringing up some cantankerous points. She also points out, by the way, that the state of Washington should be, should aspire to be run like South Africa. Um, that's, by the way, if we keep going down this road, what's happening in South Africa right now is a way station. What's happening in China right now is the next way station. What hap what's going to be happening in China in five years if they keep going is the final destination, which is going to be very much like Michel Foucault's Panopticon, where everybody's under constant surveillance all the time. Just wait until they do the neuro implants or whatever, your surveillance, Neuralink. That's Elon Musk's invention on that line. The problem here is that what we talk about, we can talk about disability. The disability studies model strongly got informed by mutually informing into the queer theory model. Why? Because disability is a form under queer theory of being queer, because you're outside of the normative. And so you had this huge blossoming very rapidly that we now have to be inclusive and this is really where it all grew. If we remember, we heard the other night that the, the uh, inclusion business, in, especially in schools, really blossomed under the gender dimension, right? So gender then, because of the way these things are paired together in all of the literature, rapidly spreads into sex and sexuality. And then we've got the disability thing as a key driver of all of this, and they're, they're swapping theory. And then all of a sudden what happens is that's the thing they're now calling problematic because it takes the focus off of race. So you can see how it's, again, even at the macro scale, it just creates this kind of squabbling competition for not doing what you need to be doing. Inclusion is actually, the way it's arranged under critical inclusion is not a good project. We can understand how that comes to be by reading, you know, how they actually define this thing and then understanding what they mean by their, their very slippery language. On the Brandeis University website, they have a social justice glossary that defines a number of terms. We'll read another one in a little bit um, that's shocking. But they actually have a definition for inclusion, and what they say is that inclusion is the notion that an organization or system is welcoming to new populations and or identities. This new presence is not merely tolerated, but expected to contribute meaningfully into the system in a positive, mutually beneficial way. Sounds great on paper, except when you 
pause for a second to ask some harder questions. For example, what does welcoming to new populations and or identities mean? Why new? Not all, new. Well, that means they must assume that there's a default population or identity and that everybody else is the one who now gets special treatment. The default one is default. It does not get special treatment, and so you erect a double standard. New means not default. What I just said about the not normative thing, that's where it all comes from. It's not in cahoots or under the umbrella of the dominant ideology, but neo-Marxism says the dominant ideologies are things like white supremacy, patriarchy, um, heteronormativity or cis-heteronormativity. These power dynamics are the dominant normative expectations of society and everything else is the abject other. And so the new populations and ideas are going to come from these so-called marginalized or excluded perspectives. Intersectionality, the, the famous paper, Mapping the Margins from 1991, Kimberly Crenshaw wrote that, what are the margins? She says that black feminism exists at the margins of black liberationism, which is mostly male, and radical feminism, which is mostly white. So there's this idea that, oh, you know, our special interest group is excluded because we're not special enough. And so the idea of inclusion is how do you bring a more radical special interest group into the center? And then you have to welcome new populations and or identities, not merely tolerating them, not, which is to say not merely allowing them to be there, but you have to set the conditions so that they meaningfully contribute, which is why you now have to bring in a feminist artist for glacier science and a person from somewhere in the world that believes that bacon fat moves glaciers if it's too close to the glacier. You have to bring those perspectives in because it's got to be welcoming to new populations in ways that contribute meaningfully. You're not allowed to say that's a superstition or lady that's a painting. We have actual photographs. You know, that's fiction, this is reality. You can't say something like that because it has to be brought in, in a way that will contribute meaningfully. Unfortunately, if you decide that you want to disagree with any of this, that's also exclusive. <laughs> Disagreement and layers of complexity, like we listened to last night, or we read last night from D'Angelo in uh, her book, Is Everyone Really Equal? Disagreement is a sign of, of, of establishing privilege or defending your privilege or trying to keep it. So disagreement with this model is exclusionary. If you tell the feminist that her painting is a painting, which is beautiful maybe, but fiction and not reality, and that we actually want to study glaciers that are physically real with photographs of them that are actually, you know, real photographs of them, then what you're actually doing is dismissing her perspective. You are excluding her because you didn't welcome her perspective that way. And when it comes to people, if it's a cantankerous activist, I've talked to a couple of you now and you have businesses that you work in, and I hear this all the time, everybody knows who they are. Everybody knows the handful of problematic agitators in their organizations that keep causing all of these kinds of problems, and nobody knows what to do with them because if you try to fire them or you try to sanction them or you try to give them actual responsibility and get them to do something other than activism, they throw a huge fit and try to make a PR or HR catastrophe for you. It's why I said it's an extortion racket through public relations and human relations or human resources, I guess, is, is where that actually goes. Because disagreement is considered excluding their perspective. Dis saying, you know, work is not for activism. You can do all the activism you want at home, but we're gonna, whatever Coinbase does, we're gonna do Coinbase stuff here. 
and they're going to throw a gigantic fit, blow up, and a quarter of the workforce quit because all they wanted to do was politics at work. Coinbase luckily stood its ground. But the disagreement with their perspective, not letting them do activism at work, was exclusion. And how did they prove it was exclusion? They quit. The answer to when that happens, by the way, is do not cave. That's a borderline personality disorder tactic to get you to bend your will. Let them go, let the screen door hit them right on the ass on their way out. Wave, whatever you have to do. Get ready for the lawsuit, and then in two or three years when some other little social incident comes up, expect another bogus lawsuit that they ginned up because they're still suffering their narcissistic injury. If you can, yeah. Yeah, that's some, that is, place them in your competitor's business. That's some warfare. Okay. So with, the, with, with, critical, with critical inclusion, this is all about bringing in critically conscious activists and the ideas of critically conscious activists. That's all inclusion is really for when it's been infected by neo-Marxism. It is how do we include more neo-Marxism in what's happening, whether that's by person or by idea or by policy. Other ways of knowing, for example, have to be brought into the sciences, have to be brought into, into analysis, they have to be brought into whatever uh, situation. What are those other ways of knowing? Well, you would say that maybe we are going to, they would say, well, we'll consider, and we must consider indigenous perspectives, but what they actually mean is some weird car car caricature of those that's usually highly politically active. And it's not all of indigenous perspectives. There's a huge fight about a telescope in Hawaii, for example, a huge fight over that telescope, and it's only, it turns out, the activist perspective that actually counts as an indigenous perspective at that point. People who happen to be native Hawaiians were like, yeah, the telescope's great, it's a good mountain for it. Those people have to be excluded from the conversation because they're not being inclusive enough of other ways of knowing. This leads in practice to things uh, like research justice. Research justice is actually a program where they are trying to reevaluate how research is done so that it is more inclusive and more diverse. In other words, we're now going to, under a doctrine called citational justice, we're going to cite authors of color or outside of uh, the normative circuits more often, and we're going to avoid citing straight white men to the maximum degree possible. This actually happened within critical race theory when Patricia uh, Hill Collins wrote black feminist thought and incorporated a ton of Michel Foucault in the, th in the thinking, and then a couple of years later, and we cite this in Cynical Theory so you can look it up there and get the actual citation, there was somebody who actually wrote that it would be more intersectional to cite the black woman than the white man. So we just won't mention that this is Foucault anymore. It's now something completely different. And so this is citational justice. Research justice is rearranging the entire research project to focus on justice or equity or diversity or inclusion or whatever the, the favored thing of the moment is. In other words, it's Lysenkoism. It's the early stage of Lysenkoism. It is party apparatus-based research priorities rather than knowledge and truth-based research priorities. It's replacing the party ideology uh, for objectivity. Objectivity out, ideology in. That's Lysenkoism by definition. That's research justice. They lever that in with inclusion under terms like epistemic injustice, epistemic oppression, epistemic violence. You are ep you're doing epistemic violence against the feminist when you tell her that her painting isn't a picture. 
It's epistemic violence. You are excluding her perspective, dismissing her to the margins, saying what she does is not important, which is going to hurt her feelings and cause psychological trauma. And trauma is trauma, so that's actually a form of violence. Epistemic violence was created, I, I think the, original, the originator was uh, Gayatri Spivak, who was a post-colonial theorist who cited Foucault on every other page. And then uh, when Christy Dotson wrote her famous paper about epistemic oppression and violence in 2012, uh, she cites Spivak again and again, but never bothers to mention that Foucault was there because we can't talk about the dirty white man because of citational justice. This, is act this actually happens, okay? So epistemic exclusion, violence, oppression, and so on. It is epistemic oppression to not have uh, your views taken seriously enough. And again, you can say this is totally legitimate. You know, if the, the black guy comes in and says X, Y, Z or whatever, and you're like, well, you're black, so you don't know what you're talking about. That is, that's a problem. That's a real problem. It's another thing entirely to say, well, somebody somewhere in the world said that glaciers move because of pork fat, and if we don't include that, that we're doing violence to those people by not taking their perspective seriously or treating it as a superstition uh, or whatever else. And in fact, explicitly as a tenet of critical race theory, and we also heard this in uh, the white awareness from Judith Katz, actually no, her, her essay she wrote in 1989 from Judith Katz, is the forwarding of storytelling, counter storytelling, narratives, in other words, they want it to be a subjective assessment. Why? Because whoever is in control of the hegemonic power, which they are set, setting up to be themselves, gets to control what is knowledge is everything, if everything's brought down to the subjective level. What we're actually going to take as authoritative isn't outside of us in objectivity any longer. It is now inside the heads of the people who get to determine how we're all going to behave. And of course, these stories and so on, what we already talked about, often come in very caricatured ways, and you think that this is probably a bug because it's done by idiots and whatever, and I've kind of alluded to that, but it turns out to be very profitable as well because let's say that we're going to bring in, oh, we need more inclusion, so let's have Taco Tuesday, whatever. Now it's some caricature, and it reproduces more problems, and it's actually this kind of spiraling thing where there are all these papers about how allyship is very problematic because it's done wrong, and it's all tokenizing, and the whole tokenizing argument comes into play, uh, and that the white people who brought all the stuff in did it wrong in the first place, and what this is, there again, there are always legitimate points that can be made. That's probably typically what happens in ham-fisted early attempts, but ultimately what they then demand is, well, what we need is an officer of diversity and inclusion that understands the real authentic understanding of this, who's going to be a critical theorist, who's going to oversee all of this stuff in the future, and the thing is going to be turned into a program that makes sure that it includes primarily activist perspectives. And so there's actually a feature aspect, not just a bug aspect, to doing it wrong. Every time they implement a program for inclusion wrong and offend somebody, they have justification for doing a better inclusion job and hiring more inclusion experts. This is why I keep saying this is snake oil. People are like, what do you replace it with? You don't replace it with something, you stop doing it. Snake oil is a type of fake medicine that you take that makes you sicker so that the person selling you the snake oil can sell you another bottle and tell you you're going to get worse before you get better. Keep taking it. The answer isn't that you go drink... Windex or something, the answer is you stop drinking the snake oil. What do we replace it with? Stop taking the poison is what you replace it with. And this is very difficult because people want, whoa, there's this 
It's a classic kind of thing where, oh, there's a crisis. We need a solution. This is something. We can do that. Let's go. And then the mentality adapts to that by some kind of a renormalization process to where, well, we, we had a problem. We must have to do something. So now if we're not going to do the thing, we have to replace it with something else. And that something else is going to be kind of a synthetic watering down, a third way, as it were, uh, amalgam of this new thing. And so the activists may not get their whole hog, but they get a, a big chunk of it and the ratchet twists another notch. The ratchet doesn't go back the other way. That's how ratchets work. What this ultimately leads to then is justification for selective censorship and purges. You can't say the thing that'll offend the, the particular protected class person who is perpetually offendable, or even worse, the diversity commissar, who's probably a white woman from the suburbs, just to be completely honest, is going to come in, and if she deems, for example, and I'm saying that it could be anybody, that the thing you said could potentially be offensive to a Latinx if that such a person were here, so you don't even have to cause offense. Oh, some hypothetical Latinx person might be offended by that, and therefore now we're going to, it's like taking offense by proxy, right? Nobody was offended except that the person said, oh, this could possibly be offensive, so we're going to curtail things. And you think, that seems kind of extreme, but that's actually what happens in a lot of cases. Somebody says that could be offensive to somebody, so we're not going to say things like, you know, we're all American or whatever, because maybe somebody doesn't identify with being American. Or in the case, for example, I mentioned Helen Pluckrose doing her, one of her papers for a master's degree, and I mentioned the example um, where she got in trouble for saying that people should work in gr diverse groups toward a common goal, and she got in trouble for that. One of the other things that she got in trouble for, it turned out it was a paper about Othello, and that she had made the radical argument that the cross-racial relationship was not the scandal, it was that it was a cross-religious relationship, because according to her historical readings of the uh, late medieval period, cross-racial wasn't a big thing. Brits didn't get freaked out about this, but cross-religion is a scandal. You know, you have a Christian and a Muslim now, and that's a huge issue. And so she wrote this in the paper, and her professor marked her down vigorously for it, told her to change it, and the justification was, what if an African-American from America read this? That was it. Took offense by, pro by proxy like anybody's going to read Helen's thesis in America, you know, not knowing where, where she was going. But, and then assuming that every black American would take offense to the idea that, whoops, you know, in the 1400s, we haven't just had this, you know, history isn't this simplistic arc of diminishing racism across time. And so therefore, if we go back to 14, the, the late 1400s or early 1500s, that it must have been crazy racist. We're going to disabuse people of that and say, no, we didn't really think that way then. But instead, it was a cross-religious thing. That would be patently offensive, according to this professor, to any African-American who might possibly read it. That's taking offense by proxy. So this was an inclusion doctrine that, that ended up knocking down Helen's grade for somebody who wasn't even there, that didn't have anything to do with anything, and to actually take rigorous scholarship and turn it into ideological drivel. So this is actually happening, and that was many years ago. Was, I don't remember when she finished her degree, but it was many years ago. So what you're actually looking at is the justification for what, did Helen do her PhD? No, she did not, because they told her she'd have to do it this way. So Helen said she very admirably said she would only do a PhD when she could do one she's pr she could be proud of. And she didn't continue. Purged. Voluntarily, but nevertheless. She got kicked out of the academic process that she had uh, intended to follow. And so what this actually is build under is, is, a, is, is creating tolerance. They actually had a website, they finally renamed it recently, that was called Teaching Tolerance. 
where almost all of this stuff was being pumped out. Um, teaching tolerance. So it's all branded under tolerance. So this is why we have to understand that inclusion in practice is actually a justification for implementing what Herbert Marcuse called repressive tolerance in 1965 in his totalitarian essay. The thesis of this essay, which is fairly long, but you can read it on your flight home easily, in 1965 is we must tolerate movements from the left even if they're violent, and we extend no tolerance to movements from the right, suppressing them with violence if necessary. A clear, a clear biasing of the entire political playing field. And we live in the repressive tolerance world. This is why the left could go burn down cities through 2020, and that was a learning experience, and it's the voice of the unheard, and da-da-da-da-da. And then January 6th is a world-changing insurrection that requires us to militarize Washington, D.C., have months-long hearings, put people in jail on, on trumped up and fabricated charges, put people on the no-fly list, which is a tremendously inconveniencing uh, punishment. If you know it all goes, it's not that you just can't get on a plane. You get restricted from a lot of stuff if you get put on that list. FBI investigating people, all this crazy stuff over something that was a protest that got ugly and out of hand, federalizing the Capitol Police, or taking the Capitol Police and you know, creating outposts in other states, all off the justification of this one incident that will just be kind to their side and say one incident that got somewhat out of hand versus a year of riots those during a pandemic, which all of a sudden the pandemic didn't apply in those situations, right? This is repressive tolerance. We must tolerate everything the left does and nothing the right does. That's the thesis. And in case you think that that's not, that I'm riffing for the thesis, let me read to you from Mr. Marcusa. This is near the end where he finally tells the story. Liberating tolerance, which by the way, I don't quite understand why he did this. It's one of those language games. He only calls it repressive tolerance in the essay in the title. <laughs> he calls it liberating tolerance throughout the essay to create liberation. But that means repressive tolerance. Liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. I didn't make that up. That's his exact words. As to the scope of this tolerance and intolerance, it would extend to the stage of action as well as discussion and propaganda, of deed as well as of word. The traditional criterion of clear and present danger seems no longer adequate to a stage where the whole society is in the situation of the theater audience when somebody cries fire. It is the situation in which the total catastrophe could be triggered off any moment, not only by a technical error, but also by a rational miscalculation of risks, or by a rash speech of one of the leaders. So he's talking about the potential for nuclear catastrophe or another rise of a fascistic Hitler-like movement. Um, technical, we almost did blow ourselves up with nuclear war a few times by technical error. NORAD one time, did, I think it was NORAD, detected missiles incoming, but it turned out that it was the moon rising, and we were seconds away from a counter-strike that would have not been a good thing. There have been, believe it or not, planes that were carrying nuclear weapons that they fell out of. Um, if you read the history of nuclear, nuclear weapons accidents, it's a scary story how close, the 20th century is a miracle, um, more or less. Uh, so he's not totally wrong, but this whole, this last part, or by a rash speech of one of the leaders, and that's what they justified all of the stuff with Trump when he's calling, he's calling Kim, Kim Jong-un or whatever, rocket man, rash speech by one of the leaders. We're going to have a nuclear holocaust. It's all over, blah, blah, blah. 
That they, we had panic on tele and CNN for like a year because of that. Nothing, Hillary Clinton said every third word was gonna be about the nuclear codes in his hand. Oh, we don't wanna put the nuclear codes in this rash guy's hands. So that's what, we live in this world. This is the, that, this is the rationale. Oh, Trump's gonna say something crazy and spark a nuclear war. Turned out that it was the opposite. How about that? So he says, in past and different circumstances, the speeches of the fascists and Nazi leaders were the immediate prologue to the massacre. The distance between the propaganda and the action between the organization and its release on the people had become too short. But the spreading of the word could have been stopped before it was too late. If democratic tolerance had been withdrawn when the future leaders started their campaign, mankind would have had the chance of avoiding Auschwitz in a world war. So if somebody would have just stepped in and said, Hitler, you can't make speeches, maybe we would have avoided World War II and the Nazi massacre. So now you see where he's going with this. We have to be able to figure out who those people that are causing that possible problem are, label them domestic terrorists, mom, and shut them down. This is repressive tolerance. I have no idea what, the, what he knows. The whole post-fascist period is one of clear and present danger, he says. We're, so he says, clear and present danger is not a good enough standard. Why? Because we are, it's, everything is always clear and present danger in the post-fascist period. Consequently, true pacification requires a withdrawal of tol tolerance before the deed at the stage of communication in word, print, and picture. Censorship. Such extreme suspension of the right of free speech and free assembly is indeed justified only if the whole society is in extreme danger. I maintain that our society is in such an emergency situation and it has become the normal state of affairs. So when we were talking about paranoid personality disorder before, um, I'll just say that again. Different opinions and philosophies can no longer compete peacefully for adherence and persuasion on rational grounds. The marketplace of ideas is organized and delimited by those who determine the national and individual interest. In other words, those who have, this is neo-Marxism, it's not identity Marxism. Those who have access to the power, the top of the power dynamic get to set the actual exchange of ideas, the actual limits of the marketplace of ideas. Nobody can actually share their views in an open marketplace. It's actually controlled by the systems of power. Writ large, we're talking about fascism, and that's what he's looking at. Writ small, we're saying that if a white person shows up to this meeting, then it's gonna make the black people uncomfortable, so we have to have a racially segregated space at the university so that they can have relief from white supremacy, because white supremacy dictates how people can talk with their respectability politics or whatever else, and it doesn't give people an opportunity to say other things, so the environment is not inclusive unless we explicitly exclude the people that make certain people who are special feel uncomfortable. Same logic. In this society for which the ideologists have proclaimed the end of ideology, the false consciousness has become the general consciousness, from the government down to its last objects. False consciousness is the idea that the elites have basically brainwashed everybody to believe that things are different than they actually are, and that they're not, the people are not oppressed, that they actually have freedom, and they have good lives, and that they enjoy the, the fruits of their labors, and that meritocracy works, and so on. A critical consciousness sees through all of that and sees that it's all actually a giant conspiracy by everybody in power. The small and powerless minorities, which struggle against the false consciousness and its beneficiaries, must be helped. Their continued existence is more important than the preservation of abused rights and liberties which grant constitutional powers to those who oppress these minorities. So if I make racially insensitive comments and I say, hey, free speech, my rights, my liberties, are the vector by which I can do oppression. 
And he says the continued existence, their continued existence, there's that hyperbolic language we all love from them, their continued existence is more important than the preservation of abused rights and liberties. Totalitarian document at its core. It should be evident by now that the exercise of civil rights by those who don't have them presupposes the withdrawal of civil rights from those who prevent their exercise. And that liberation of the damned of the earth presupposes suppression not only of their old but also of their new masters. Withdrawal of tolerance from regressive movements before they can become active. Intolerance even toward thought, opinion, and word. And finally, intolerance in the opposite direction, that is toward the self-styled conservatives, to the political right. These anti-democratic notions respond to the actual development of the democratic society, which has destroyed the basis for universal tolerance. It's not your fault that I'm hitting you, you're making me hit you. The conditions under which tolerance can again become liber a liberating and humanizing force have still to be created. Those conditions are called communism, by the way. This is why it's hard to read Marcuse. You have to read it like five times to realize what the, the conditions that, what does he say? The conditions under which tolerance can again become a liberating and humanizing force. There's a lot packed into that little phrase, but it actually what he means is when we have communism, has still to be created. When tolerance mainly serves the protection and preservation of a repressive society, when it serves to neutralize opposition and to render men immune against other and better forms of life, then tolerance has been perverted. And when this perversion starts in the mind of the individual, in the mind of the individual, in his consciousness, his needs, when heteronymous interests occupy him before he can experience his servitude, then the efforts to counteract his dehumanization must begin at the place of entrance. There where the false consciousness takes form, or rather is systematically formed, it must begin with stopping the words and images which feed this consciousness. Thought control. Poor conservatives are getting fed misinformation and disinformation, so they're thinking the wrong thoughts. And the only way to control society and make it liberating and humanizing again is to make sure the conservatives can't even get those ideas into their silly little heads in the first place. In the mind of the individual. Now, there's a phrase in here, there's a word in here, a $10 word, heteronymous interests. This is an important little part here. When heteronymous interests occupy him before he can experience his servitude. What that means, heteronymous interests are the interests of the various different forces of society. So Coca-Cola is a heteronymous interest. It's an outside interest that's swaying you with propaganda marketing or whatever. And so you think you're having a good life because you have your Coca-Cola. You can kick your feet back, you can drink your Coke, you can have a beer, whatever. The, the interests of Coca-Cola have actually come into you. You're serving those interests. You're making them money. You're serving Coke's interests. Meanwhile, you're being tricked into thinking your life is better because you're serving those interests. That's the, mind, the mindset. Only it's all of the elites in society are producing outside interests that make you think you enjoy your life and prevent you from seeing the fact that you're actually in bondage, that you're in servitude to those corporations. That's neo-Marxism in a nutshell. So we have to stop that before it can enter the mind, he says. And remember here, he also says, there where the false consciousness takes form, or rather, is systematically formed. There's that same idea with the minoritization. Something outside of you is, for, the, the Coca-Cola is brainwashing you to think it's a good life to drink a Coca-Cola. Even if your taste buds explode with pleasure when you suck down a Coca-Cola, or you put some rum in it and make a Cuba Libre or whatever, even if they explode with pleasure, at that, no, you have been fooled. 
their marketing interests have convinced you that that's how you should feel about it, so you'll keep buying the product and you're basically a slave to them. Keep tweeting because you're the best unpaid employee of Twitter.com or something. That's this mentality. So we have to stop that from even entering into the mind. He says, to be sure, this is censorship, even pre-censorship, but openly directed against the more or less hidden censorship that permeates the free media. So there's secret censorship happening already, so we have to censor harder in the other direction. They're not letting radical ideas rule the airwaves, so now we have to censor the crap out of the right. That's basically what he's saying. Throughout the essay, he actually argues, well, the left doesn't have any money. It doesn't have any resources. The right has all of those, so they're actually secretly suppressing us. So now we have to create this. We have an unlevel playing field that we have to tip the other way just to level it. He says, where false consciousness has become prevalent in national and popular behavior, it translates itself almost immediately into practice, the safe distance between ideology and reality, repressive thought and repressive action between the word of destruction and the deed of destruction is dangerously shortened. Thus, the break through the false consciousness may provide the Archimedean point for a larger emancipation at an infinitesimally small spot to be sure, but it is on the enlargement of such small spots that the chance of change depends. That's some heavy words too. Archimedean point is where if you, had a, if you were at the Archimedean point and you had a lever long enough, you could move the whole earth. So you can move a gigantic thing with very little force uh, if you find the Archimedean point. So it becomes the Arch- a small little point of, of contradiction becomes the, the place where you can open the false consciousness up to critical consciousness. That becomes the Archimedean point for a larger emancipation, which is communism. He says this is an infinitesimally small spot, to be sure, but it is on the enlargement of such small spots that the chance of change depends. In other words, Lenin's accelerate the contradictions becomes reformulated to let's find the small spots where this is uncomfortable and enlarge them until we move the whole earth. How? By censoring the right, even with, I didn't include the paragraph he has where he says the word violence like 13 times. But it's, if the left is violent, you need to put up with it because their violence is justified because otherwise they're repressed and it's their only option. But if the right is violent, then that's just more repression. This turns out to be the exact same argument we made in our fake paper about humor, but it wasn't violence, it was humor. That if, if the status quo supporting side, the conservatives or whatever you want, use humor, if the dominant group uses humor, then it's always disparaging in order to keep people down. But if social justice uses irony and humor, then it's always liberating and always to be good, considered good. So we can't have right-wing humor. We can't make fun of social justice. As a matter of fact, it was the thesis of the, of the paper that one was accepted. So this is the establishment of the two rule books that we touched on last night. They've created two rule books under a doctrine of repressive tolerance. And the, cl- the, the reason that this is connected to inclusion, that we have to bring this up, is because inclusion is framed in terms of tolerance. And tolerance is understood in repressive tolerance terms. So the inclusion program is how you bring that mindset that I just read to you from Herbert Marcuse from the 1960s into an affinity and organization. How, how strong is the censorship, even pre-censorship or removal uh, before the deed? Well, it depends on the organization and how they interpret the words. Its pure unadulterated form is that the left shall be tolerated in everything it does, including violence like we watched all summer. The right shall not be tolerated in anything that it does, and we can use violence to suppress them if necessary because otherwise the, the playing field is tilted unfairly. So inclusion becomes, again, the justification for a double standard to be installed. The, the two rule books, the double standard is intentional. The, the woke get one set of rules that are very generous to them, 
and you get a separate set of rules that are very punitive to you kind of constantly, and you heard again and again kind of the seeds where if you translate this out of the grand consumer capitalist model that Marcuse was looking at, and then we even mentions the damned of the earth and the, the minorities, and switch it into the place where it's now, um, you know, the, if I bring white supremacy by my very nature of being white-skinned into a room, then I make people uncomfortable, then I need to be excluded from that space. So you see the so-called racial caucuses and racial affinity groups and racialized spaces or racial set-aside spaces, safe spaces that are taking place on college campuses and in workplaces and in schools. The segregation to teach one side about oppression separately from uh, to teach them about privilege on the other side. This is all, all approved under this doctrine of inclusion, which is meant to be, or is framed in terms of teaching tolerance, which is the name of an, or recently, until recently was the name of an organization dedicated to disseminating this. It was a gigantically well-funded organization that dumped these materials into the universe. They've rebranded, and I forgot what their name is off the top of my head right now, but um, they're still doing it. Massive, massive bags of cash behind a drive to create materials to dump into every professional institution possible, ultimately to install an ethic of repressive tolerance based on nobody can have their feelings hurt if they're in a protected class. And as I, the, I'll tell you another story. The very first moment I got involved in thinking that there's a problem in social justice was in 2012 or 13, and I don't remember exactly when, and I was having a conversation. It was in a, one of these deals where you mix your groups and you have some people and you're like a little uncomfortable because like the parties are colliding and you don't know who's gonna get along. And uh, I was with some of my blue collar friends, most of whom were white, and there weren't very many people there. So it was white guy, blue collar guy, talking about affirmative action hiring at his factory and how he thought it was very dangerous. And then there's a kind of middle-class liberal white woman there and she objects and says, don't you think that's a little bit racist? This isn't 12 or 13, it was very early on. And they kind of have a back and forth. I decide to step in and say something. And the next thing you know, after I've said something, um, she corrects me and says, he's a white man, his story has been told. That was an inclusive response. That was an inclusive response because his attitude was exclusive of people who are set aside as protected classes. Here's an important point to remember. A protected class is never an equal class. Their goal is not to have equality. The critical race theory, the introdu introduction and introduction, the book, in the first paragraph, they say openly that they call into question the very foundations of equality theory. The state of California in the last election tried to remove the anti-discrimination language from its state constitution so that they could intentionally discriminate. That's straight out of Ibram Kendi's objective that the remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination, the remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Tolerant inclusion is the mechanism by which this is being brought in. Inclusion training at work is often going to be to get people to think in terms of these repressive tolerance double standards. So, with critical inclusion, you have the identity Marxist justification for enacting repressive tolerance. Identity Marxism is not like old school neo-Marxism. It's all about these identity categories now. They don't really care about what Coca-Cola is doing all that much as long as they're doing the identity politics stuff. Um, but the deal is, in simplest expression, when critical inclusion is in place, everything that's one of their people one of their diversity officers or people who are taking their side or whatever, everything those people forward must be accepted if not positively and enthusiastically embraced or another word they like to use is celebrated, you have to celebrate their contributions. Everything that goes 
along with what they're trying to achieve is tentatively okay until somebody's offended by it later, and everything that goes against their objectives must be repressed because it's dangerous, causes trauma, um, or some other, other nonsense that they use to manipulate the situation. Um, this way of thinking, we've covered it again and again, so I'm not gonna linger on it, but it ultimately comes down to thinking about power dynamics and systemic power shaping everything. If you believe genuinely that society is a tilted playing field in a very severe and systemic way, then they're trying to create artificial means to level it out. That's why it's socialism. Socialism says there's an economic imbalance, and what we're gonna do is seize the means of production and artificially level it out till it becomes automatic, and then we'll have communism. This is the same thing. Equity is the idea that we have socio-cultural whether it's privilege or power or money or access or whatever, we have differences there, everything's not equal, so we're gonna artificially take control, seize, seize the means of cultural or intellectual or whatever production or material, we're going to level that out and we're gonna keep doing equity until we end up on the other side where we finally have justice, where that's automatic. It's the exact same model. So when you have this coming in through critical theory, you, whether inclusion being the point at which this is made to be positively celebrated and repressed if you're against it, uh, when you have this coming in in that regard, what you have is this drive to use repressive tolerance to artificially level the playing field until it works. And of course it doesn't work because humans turn out to be humans. I'll read to you from Sensoy and D'Angelo again to give you a, a taste of this mentality, this power dynamic mentality and how integral it is. This is a little bit long because I have to set it up. Like it does, what, the paragraph I wanna read doesn't make sense unless I tell you where she kinda came from. It says, the example of women's suffrage gaining the right to vote in the United States and Canada illustrates several distinguishing features of oppression. This will also illustrate, for those of you who need to know, how heavily, I say neo-Marxism, neo-Marxism, critical theory, blah, 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 feminism, was integral, all of this is really heavily imprinted with feminism. And feminists were the ones who brought most of the critical theory and the postmodernism into the mainstream. And they did it because they were so desperate for their one mission, which is to utterly abolish the idea of gender roles. Not to say that we shouldn't care too much and if people wanna live outside of them, good for them, but to abolish the idea of gender roles entirely. And so they were very, they're very you know, monomaniacal about that particular goal and so you're gonna, the feminist flavor in this is, is overwhelming and you'll see how it's gonna immediately analogize to other paradigms besides feminism as we go. Women, of course, they say, played a primary role in the struggle for suffrage. They had to organize and fight to gain the vote. Yet ultimately, the ability to grant women suffrage rested in the hands of men. Women could not grant themselves the right to vote because they did not hold institutional power. Only men could actually grant uh, suffrage to women because only men held the institutional positions of power necessary to do so. Hence, while both groups could be prejudiced against the other, men's prejudice took on a much more powerful and all-encompassing form. So now you're seeing the power dynamic model coming into play. Men did hold all the institutional power, but somehow this same power dynamic, she's gonna argue, continues even after women did gain the right to vote, it, which would have ameliorated the problem that she's calling to. Just like in the feminist glaciology paper, they say that they know that glaciology is a masculinist and feminist exclusionary science because back in the day when it first started, all the best glaciologists were rugged manly men who could go to the Arctic or climb a mountain and a lot of times they literally did in like 1830 judge who's 
Arctic climatology or whatever they did was better by how many polar bears they killed on the process or whatever. It was all, it was very macho in 1835 or whatever, but even though that's no longer the case and rigorous methodologies are there, they, they believe that that old power imbalance, as Jacques Derrida has it, haunts forever the entire system that was created out of what that was. Same thing here, she's gonna argue that when the vote is given to women, the power dynamic still haunts the situation, doesn't go away, and the critical theory view is actually that it got worse, because now it's not obvious. It's more hidden, the same, but harder to see. Um, so this institutional power argument is kind of a, a, a trick that they play, but it's, there's a legitimacy here, that it hooks people. Yeah, that is true. You know. Women couldn't give themselves the right to vote because they couldn't vote. But their view, is, and this is very important, is that that didn't change when that situation changed. So they have a very clunky approach, a very unrealistic approach to what civil rights is supposed to achieve. So she goes on, and this is where it has to get all spooky, haunting, because men controlled all of the major institutions, government, media, economics, religion, medicine, education, police, and military. The collective effect of men's prejudice was, ra was radically different. Men as a group infuse their prejudice into the very fabric of society. So you see where that's now gone spooky. It's now systemic. And by the way, the theory that she's pointing out about, oh, the people who hold institutional power get to call all the shots. Let me just give you a blanket warning against anybody who says the people who hold all the power get to call all the shots, and maybe it'd be better if we had all the power. They think in terms of who gets to have all the power constantly because they want to be the people with all the power. They actually do not want a democratization of power. They want a reorganization of power into their own hands to order the world as they would. But here, how are they going to continue their grift because women can vote now? What do we do? Oh, no. Oh, well, it made its way into the very fabric of society. That's how. Which is exactly like when the UFO cults that Leon Festinger uh, infiltrated in the 1950s so that he could look at cognitive dissonance when the UFO didn't come, this is exactly the same thing. What he said in, in general was with cults, when their beliefs are falsified, what they do is rather than abandoning their beliefs, they blow them out into a less falsifiable arena. So for instance, maybe the, the, the UFO didn't come because they saw the piety of the UFO believers and were, were pleased by that and decided not to blow up the earth, which is which, is, un, which is, is an unfalsifiable cult belief. So you actually, when cults are, are falsified, typically they actually strengthen by becoming more vague in how they operate. And this is what's happening here. Prejudice, she says, is often unconscious. So it's, now it's deep buried in your mind where you don't even know you're happening, where it's happening. So this would happen whether or not men intended to or were aware they were doing this. So a guy saying, I'm not being sexist, <laughs> turns out, well, yeah, you were, because it's all, you don't even know that you're doing it. This is great for inducing vulnerability when you catch somebody in a moment where they actually connect to something that might have been on, you know, uh, impolite or, or rude or whatever else, and they say, oh, guess what? If you think you just had that one, you have all kinds of them, go soul search, and you're going to rip somebody apart, and hey, here's this doctrine for how you can do a lifetime of self-reflection and self-critique, and by the way, you should do some social activism on our behalf, welcome to the cult, because um, it's, all, it's all unconscious, you don't even realize you're doing it. Wait, do you see, you'll see it everywhere once you start to see it, that you're doing this. She says, because men made the rules, the rules reflected their prejudices and served their interests. For example, this is what inclusion training is teaching people to think. Whoever was in power before made all the rules and set up the systems to serve their own interests. For example, because scientists began with the premise of female inferiority, feminist glaciology, 
The research questions and the interpretation of findings were informed by that assumption. And then she cites Sandra Harding, who was the feminist epistemologist and standpoint theorist from the 1980s, who was overwhelmingly discredited. Um, Sandra Harding, biggest claim to fame, by the way, is when she called Newton's Principia Mathematica a rape manual in a book. She didn't just say it off the cuff, she put it in a book. It's like some editor should have been like, wait a minute. And she was like, nope, it's a rape manual because it teach, physics teaches people how to rape the universe and be able to do things with it according to their wishes, not according to the wishes of the universe. That's Sandra Harding. That's who she cites for this book in 2012. And a paper or book probably is 1991. I don't know which source she's citing. Sandra Harding wrote a lot of stuff. Because they were in the position to disseminate their findings, they further reinforced and rationalized their superior positions. This is a conspiracy theory, folks. This is a men-run-the-world conspiracy theory by paranoid personalities. All other institutions, also controlled by men, were constructed in ways that normalized male superiority. The clergy preached male superiority from the pulpit and rationalized it through the Bible. Doctors used the male body as a reference point for health. Those two examples are not the same. Psychiatrists based definition of mental health on male norms for emotions and rationality, and the male professor and male professors taught men's histories, ideas, and concerns. And you could easily swap out whatever you want, and you've heard this speech 3,000 times now in your professional life or on the internet. The term for male centrality is androcentrism. Androcentrism is not simply the idea that men are superior to women, but a deeper premise that supports this idea. The definitions of males and male experience become the standard for human and females and female experience are a deviation from that norm. That's how they think. That's why you have to rebalance the playing field because they think the world actually works that way. Just as a sidebar, now I'm gonna quote from Brandeis University Social Justice Glossary again. If you've never heard their definition for race, I know some of you heard it in Tampa, usually jaws drop, so you have to indulge me and be shocked. I wanna hear some gasps. This is actually their definition from race or for race on the Brandeis University website, social justice, uh, definitions page. A misleading and deceptively appealing classification of human beings created by white people originally from Europe, which assigns human worth and social status using the white racial identity as the archetype of humanity for the purpose of creating and maintaining privilege, power, and systems of oppression. Isn't that the same thing as what she just called androcentrism? But we've just swapped out male and put in white? Yeah. The archetype of humanity is white. That's what race means. It is a deceptive category created by white people to set themselves up as the archetype for humanity so they can have power and privilege over, other and uh, over others and oppress them. That's the definition of race employed by critical race theory and all of these identity Marxist ideologies. So now we can get to the part, because I had to do the androcentrism crap to set that up. This is what D'Angelo uh, and Sensoy were saying that I wanted to point out. Androcentrism, she says, remains invisible in all contexts, except when we are specifically referring to women. For example, example women's literature, women's movies, or chick flicks. Little uh, salt there on that wound. Women's basketball and women's rights. Men as a group are the, are the invisible reference point that women are measured against, and because women do not fit the norms of men, they appear inferior. Sorry about your inferiority complex. Don't project it onto the rest of us, madam. In this way, male superiority is rationalized, normalized, disseminated, and reinforced through every social institution. 
Returning to our suffrage example, because oppression is one group's prejudice plus the power to enforce that prejudice throughout society. There's our bite all and cats, prejudice plus power definition, which she doesn't cite, so surely she didn't read them. <laughs> even, if the, even if individual men believed women should have the right to vote, as men still benefited from women's exclusion, prejudice plus power because you benefit. Even if you think you are supporting, even if you think you're an ally, you still benefit from the power dynamic, so you're still complicit in it. Thus, oppression need not be personal, and intentions are, are irrelevant in terms of having privilege and advantage, or in other words, in doing discrimination. So now, intentions become irrelevant. It's all going to be in terms of disparate impact, as assessed by these frauds who mischaracterize every piece of literature that they can so that it matches their ideology. Um, we could do some examples of that if we wanted to. You see this drift then into a power dynamical way of thinking about things to the point where by the end of this, it doesn't even matter what your intentions are, it doesn't even matter if you're literally an ally against the problem and believe the whole thing, because you benefit from it, you are complicit in upholding it, and this is what has to be overcome by inclusion doctrines. You're going to include those new and different perspectives that are outside of that default for humanity. These are the only people on earth left who think that certain races, sexes, sexual orientations, et cetera, are a default for humanity. The overwhelming view among people in the United States or throughout the West today about homosexuality, for instance, is exactly as Helen phrased it in cynical theories, some people are gay, get over it. That's the overwhelming view. It wasn't always the case, but this is why Thomas Sowell says that these are people that are keeping these old systemic and institutional oppressions on life support. Women gained suffrage. There was an institutional bias then they, before. Then they gained suffrage. It goes away. So what is it? Oh, well, they also secretly structure society to their own advantage and don't even know they're doing it. And it doesn't matter what their intentions are. So it's still happening, and you can't even find it anywhere, but it's everywhere. And that's what inclusion is about, is bringing in perspectives that allegedly show that up, but those perspectives are only available through a critical theory that's not caught in the false consciousness from the heteronymous interests that Marcuse was writing about a few decades earlier, and that's why we have to have critical theorists empowered as commissars to enlighten us to all the ways that we're not being inclusive enough, diverse enough, and not, in fact, having a critical consciousness about everything we do and making, as we read in the document about equity, equity work is everybody's work. The remedy to the problem of this super vague, spooky exclusion by power dynamic, remember this is an explicit example where we had exclusion from the vote, inclusion to the vote occurs, but there's still exclusion from any power in society because of all these mystical things. The remedy is sold as inclusion and belonging training. If you are historically marginalized or oppressed, and we've talked about that idea many times now, that means under an inclusion doctrine that you are worthy, that you are probably right in whatever you're saying, you shouldn't be questioned in whatever you're saying, and that your views and your person are in need of inclusion. If it's under a neo-Marxist umbrella, what's happening in that case is that the, are, they are bringing, the people who have to be included and the views that have to be included are the activist views and the activists themselves. And just imagine for five minutes, if you think about that one problem, problematic person who just is never satisfied, how hard do you have to work? How many resources would you have to dump into satisfying the unsatisfiable? Because 
this creates an incentive structure that empowers the unsatisfiable, the perpetual complainer, that it's always somebody else's fault. It is the exact opposite of what you want in any organization because an organization requires the different workers in different positions to take responsibility for the responsibilities that they have and to rise to those challenges to the best of their ability. Sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes it is out of your hands. And again, that's where you need a reasonable person standard to be able to determine if it was reasonable to say, well, that was really out of your control. You know, nobody knew that the, the storm was coming and the plane was going to get canceled and you had to miss Monday's meeting. Nobody could have, it's not your fault versus everything's not my fault, the system of the company is rigged against me. That's the difference in perspective between, I mean, any of these things, but inclusion and, and critical inclusion at the end of the day. It empowers the worst, the implacable, and most importantly, wound collectors. I don't know if you know what a wound collector is. As far as I know, the term Azra Namani is where I came in contact with it, but she credits it to somebody else and I can't remember who. Wound collectors are people who go around looking to be insulted, and then when they get insulted, they throw a fit, look at my wound, right? You can imagine like a little kid pushing another little kid, and then the one kid punches him back, and they're like, look at my black eye. He gave me a black eye, even though he didn't start the fight. Or uh, my favorite example is a meme that was very popular 10 years ago on the internet that I still have saved on my phone and deploy strategically frequently, where there's a woman in a, in a feminist, you know, women power, the circle with the plus with a fist in the middle of it, pink shirt, and she's standing by a great big wall that says the internet. She's got a giant pile of poop in front of her that says opinions, and she's shoveling them and throwing them over the wall. And then in the next frame of the cartoon, Three shovels appear above the wall, throwing it back on her, and it's splattering, she's poop on her, and she says, help, misogyny. <laughs> That's wound collecting. It is what you would call in a political warfare strategy, because I said the other night, that's the most important thing to understand, this is an act of political warfare, it's called mid-level violence. It's an actual strategy, is to employ mid-level violence. That's what Antifa is particularly good at mid-level violence. They provoke just to the point where it's a little bit unreasonable to prosecute them or to, to crack down on them or whatever in the hopes that, one, well, you have no good options. You either retaliate to provoke a response that they're then going to frame out in a video or whatever as victimization. They do this to the police all the time. They try to get the police to whack them with the stick and then they video the part where the police whacks a protester with a stick and that's the only thing they put on the internet. Or on the other hand, the police have to stand there like they just did in Portland and just let mayhem happen and they look, what's the word that we use in the, the parlance today? Cucked. They look completely weak. They take away all of their moral authority because you won't stand up to an obvious problem, but the only way to stand up to the problem becomes an overreaction that they then weaponize against you. It's called mid-level violence. It's so important to understand that almost all of these extortions that you run into, even in the workplace, if they're verbal, are mid-level violence. They're trying to provoke somebody into overreacting. They're trying to provoke the white, uh, the, the white identitarian sleeping giant to wake up and start a race war. They're trying to provoke, and if you don't, you just have to sit there and suck down the fact that you were too weak to respond. So you either look weak or you look ridiculous. And they're the one that, that they're super good at hitting at the mid-level violence. That's who you empower by bringing this in to your 
organization. Those are the people who are going to succeed. And if that puts you in mind of borderline personality disorder or psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder, it should. And when you create an incentive structure that massively empowers personality disorders that already have kind of superpowers and rising to the top in organizational structures, just imagine the catastrophe that you're making for yourself. You're going to put psychopaths in power who know that they can manipulate this ideology, which itself is psychopathic, in order to continue to, ma to, to maintain and expand their power and to abuse the people under them, lashing out as their disorder may cause them to do. I'm not saying that this is everybody involved in diversity training is an antisocial personality disorder or borderline. I'm saying that the organization of the ideology itself incentivizes those people to rise to the top. How do you end up with a psychopath like Lenin rising to the top of the party? The party's arranged so that a person like Lenin can rise to the top of the party. I don't know if there will be such a thing with the woke movement that somebody, it's too decentralized and fragmented, I think, for one supreme leader to rise up and, and, and do something like this. But that's what you're gonna end up with is the million bureaucrats who are all abusive lunatics rising to the, it's like the opposite of the Peter Principle, or the woke version of the Peter Principle. You rise to the level of your malevolence as opposed to the level of your incompetence. Turns out those are also gonna go hand in hand. Grifters are gonna have a field day. Iron law of woke corruption is super easy to call an iron law, which is everywhere you see woke, there's probably corruption, because grifters can grift this system, especially if it's all subjective and based on offense taking. I'm offended. I can just make that up. All I gotta do is like pull a little tear or something or get really mad, throw some emotion in there. Now I'm sincere, so it's true. And I can grift right to the top of a lot of things because nobody's gonna dare tell me to shut up. And when you bring the inability to tell somebody who's acting in a tantrum to stop it, if you bring that to the realm of identity so that it's now racist or sexist to tell them to stop throwing a tantrum, it's racist or sexist to tell them that the fit that they throw is when you disallow their feminist painting as glacier, glacier science, or you tell them that that's not fair, that that becomes sexism to tell them that, you've, you've created a real identity-based monster. And again, this is the kind of thing, not everybody that's doing this is an outright identity Marxist. A lot of them are being used by the ideology in a sense. But that's exactly the kind of thing that you implement and normalize and accelerate because that's exactly the kind of thing that has an incentive structure behind it. I've actually talked to people in various industries who have woken up from having been using this and they said that they didn't, you know, brown woman comes to mind that spoke with me. Brown is a race now, we know. Um, and she said that she didn't even realize she'd get in a tight spot in a meeting with you know, the president of the company or whatever, or with a client, she had a tough spot in the meeting and she'd pull out one of these you know, little woke le emotional levers and then she'd get the deal. And she didn't even realize she was doing it. I talked to a young Latino woman in California at a university at one point and she said they came to her when she was a sophomore and said, would you like this huge stipend? Would you like power over, your, you know, over what's going on on campus by making you a student diversity officer? And the question this young woman asked me, she was about to graduate when she talked to me, she's a senior at the time, the question that she asked me was, what would you tell the sophomore who's being offered all of this that that's not the way to go? To turn down the money, to turn down the power, to turn down the opportunity because you're cashing it in off your identity. 
because she didn't even realize that that's what she was doing until she got in enough to feel guilty about it later, and not all of them do. Some of these people, I've had two or three people that have contacted me in various corporate settings who are using the woke inclusion stuff, not because they meant to, not because they believe in it, they actually are kind of repulsed by it, but because when they get in a tight spot and they have to try to make something happen, it gives them a tiny advantage or even a significant advantage, so they get to do what they do. And so this incentive structure walks them down a primrose path to becoming an activist for something they may not even believe in. And I mean, it sounds like false consciousness, but it actually is. Um, that actually happens as a result of implementing and empowering diversity, equity, inclusion, but inclusion really becomes the one, because why? You have, to in, you have to bring in new perspectives, and you have to respect them and even celebrate them. That's where we turn to belonging. Belonging is, is inclusion on steroids. It's a fancy buzzword. University of Oklahoma, or Oklahoma University president recently, I, I, get, I spoke with him when I was in Oklahoma recently, and he talked to me and said, you know, we wanted to have my whole little spill, and I said, you're basically bringing neo-Marxism into your university under the guise of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I read your entire strategic plan. I read the a uh, separate document that's the diversity, equity, and inclusion plan that you didn't include in the same document, so there's an extra piece of legwork to go find out what you're really implementing. And I'm telling you, it's a catastrophe. You're bringing neo-Marxism and identity politics onto campus. And I give my whole little spill, and he listened. He was very engaged. I don't want to make it like he was dismissive of me. And then he turned into a politician the second it was his turn to talk, and he said, well, it's really just about making sure that all students have a feeling of belonging. And I said, listen, you can't use that word belonging with me and think I don't know what it means. And all of a sudden, we had a real conversation after that, which was great. Um, belonging means that you actually have to make somebody who's been included. So remember, diversity is not enough. You have to make people feel included. But belonging is that you have to go the further step of making the person that you've now included feel like they belong, like they were an intentional, hyper-welcomed member of whatever it happens to be, that they belong, that their ideas belong, et cetera. And so when you look at this through that lens of power dynamics, it's absolutely impossible to disagree with somebody who's putting out some crackpot idea if they happen to be of a particular category of a protected class, a certain race or whatever. You cannot disagree with them because that wouldn't, they don't feel like they belong anymore. Maybe they don't have great ideas. So it's literally tipping the scale where I've mentioned you know, the addiction medicine and the idea of enablement. It's literally tipping the scale into enablement. It actually calls for, in the definition of belonging, positive celebration of the contributions of the included party. Whatever they say is great. That feminist painting, instead of a glacier photograph from satellite, has to be enthusiastically, what a great idea. Oh my gosh, we never thought to study paintings. That's really going to enrich glaciology. Don't you feel like you belong here in the science? Why don't you paint some more? We'll give you a, an endowed chair in the glaciology department or the geography department, geology department. We'll give you an endowed chair to paint your paintings. And don't you feel so welcomed? Don't you feel like you belong? Your paintings belong in our science. That's the idea behind it. This is very literally, it is the, it is the amplification of positive affirm, uh, affirmation of those people who are included, of the diversity, equity, and inclusion apparatchiks and commissars. You have to go out, you have to bend over backwards to make the party member you were forced to hire feel like they're very special and important and wanted at every opportunity. We call that Sovietization. That is the neo-Sovietization of your organization. The way that that works negatively is through inclusion meaning there's going to be the absence of outside views. 
The party operative is never made to feel excluded or uncomfortable at all, even by hearing something that maybe disagrees with the party line whatsoever. The positive aspect of this Sovietization is belonging. It is the active, positive praise of whatever contribution the little party shit brought to the table. Oh, yeah, what a great idea, Commissar. That's exactly what we wanted to do, Commissar. Meanwhile, Chernobyl's melting down, but nobody wants to take a damn bit of responsibility because they're going to get shot or whatever. This is what you're talking about. You, with inclusion, you can't offend or make uncomfortable a protected class. You can't tell them that they're wrong. With belonging, you have to praise their contributions so that they feel like they're made to belong. You have to do special activities, like Taco Tuesday, even though it's offensive, has to now be included. So they feel like this is a Mexican environment that we work in or whatever. But then you're going to ham-fist that, and it's going to turn into a never-ending grist mill where they're going to say, whoops, you messed it up. We need to do it better next time. This is seriously what kind of happens. Again, we are empowering our wound collectors. We're, we're forcing what's called an external locus of control and we are delegating responsibility to the entire group to make the most cantankerous people happy. You can hear this kind of moral lever between these two ideas in Sensoi and D'Angelo again. Although it started as a movement to challenge the dominant norms, definitions, practices, and policies in education, multicultural education today all too often manifests simply as celebrating diversity. That's inclusion. This celebration of diversity is often done through activities such as sharing food from different cultures and celebrating... You thought I was kidding about Taco Tuesday. <laughs> sharing food from different cultures and celebrating holidays such as Hanukkah and Kwanzaa, along with the traditional celebration of Christmas. Yet this approach does not acknowledge the history... Notice, by the way, who thought Christmas was the default. <laughs> projection. It's always projection. Yet this approach does not acknowledge the history and politics of difference. In practice, this approach to multicultural education is the ideology of individualism applied to each unique ethnic group in a school. Individualism applied to groups. Accelerate the contradictions. Celebrating diversity is important, but because it tends to occur without the study of power, this celebration usually actually reinforces structural inequality by obscuring unequal power between groups. This allows us to appear as though we are progressive and racially inclusive without actually addressing oppression. So you have to be on this kind of endless treadmill of more inclusion and belonging in order to not tokenize or misrepresent, and it never ends. This is how you end up redirecting more and more resources onto the DEI treadmill so equity, equity work becomes everybody's work. In the Washington State, uh, the report to the governor equity report, your well-being is considered and your ability to design, this is the definition of inclusion that they give her another one, your well-being is considered and your ability to design and give meaning to society's structures and institutions is realized. More than tolerating and respecting differences, belonging requires that all people are welcome with membership and agency in the society. Belonging is vital to having a thriving and engaged populace, which informs distributive and restorative decision-making. Distributive and restorative decision-making. Uh-huh. Communism. It's really funny, though, that their definition... I said there was a definition of inclusion. I'm sorry. It's the definition of belonging that they give. Um, doesn't say almost anything, right? It, it says very little. Um, it's kind of like, this is what it looks like, blah, blah, blah. Um, belonging is vital to having a thriving and engaged populace. No evidence, no suggestion of why, not even a citation, nothing. That's just an assertion. That's what they're after. 
You constantly are affirming everything that's brought to the table by somebody that's considered a new perspective or population, like we said at the beginning. So what this comes to in terms of neo-socialism or the Sovietization of your neo-socialization of your organization is that it's the other side of entryism. Entryism requires a purge in a way to fill in the purges with party apparatchiks, commissars. So we have a goal for the party that's equity, an administered economy, very broadly construed, privilege as part of that economy, power as part of that economy. You have a means to install party operatives, that's diversity, formally trained experts in identity Marxism. You have a mean to censor and purge dissidents, that's inclusion, party members must feel included. And you actually have to have a positive celebration of the party and its goals, that's belonging, because these cantankerous party members who've been taught to weaponize offense have to feel like they've been made to belong intentionally at all times or you didn't do it good enough. Critical inclusion is thus the justification for the exclusion of dissident perspectives, even ones that aren't positive, enthusiastic assent. You've all heard the famous story about, um, I guess it was Stalin was speaking and nobody would sit down and stop clapping because everybody knew whoever stopped clapping first would be shot. Positive assent. You have to constantly praise the party. That's belonging at its logical conclusion. Once the, if it goes to the full totalitarian control. What is it going to involve? We just heard censorship, even pre-censorship, stopping the idea from entering into the space or into the heads of people. The, diff, the dissident idea, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe we should focus on shareholder value instead of this nonsense. Maybe ESG is not the direction we want to take our company. You want to make sure you exclude those ideas and make sure nobody, not too many people in the company even think them for the first time. You want to make sure nobody hears any view of this except for the 145-page-long document of gobbledygook that has about 20 operative sentences in it if you can pick them out of, the, out of the heap of poop. That's what it boils down to. The ideas that make the protected class, which becomes the party, feel excluded, must not be allowed. That's censorship and pre-censorship. You're also going to end up with forced apologies for transgressions. We're going to call those struggle sessions. Those happen in the hot seat within the diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. A lot of people, maybe not at your workplace, but a lot of people have wrote to me and told me that's exactly what has happened, and they have to interrogate their feelings of defensiveness at having been accused. That's a struggle session. Hello, Maoism. Leninism 4.0 versus 3.0, right? You're going to have forced retractions of academic papers that espouse non-inclusive ideas. Bruce Gilley, a colleague of Peter Boghossian's at Portland State, wrote a paper a few years ago titled um, The Case for Colonialism, where he cited almost exclusively African scholars who made a robust case that colonialism, not in addition to the negative effects that it had, brought many positives as well, and there should be a more nuanced understanding. When this came out, when it was accepted, peer-reviewed, accepted, published, not only did they we, we, not only do they go nuts on the journal, just like with the Rebecca Tuvel thing that I talked about in the session this morning, not only did they go nuts at the journal, force the retraction of the paper, they tried to get the entire editorial board fired from the journal, they tried to get Bruce Gilley fired, he ended up going through a Title IX inquisition at his school over this, and they tried to get his PhD taken away from him. So this is the kind of, this is inclusion, because he put people in harm's way. He gave them 
you know, a, a, a traumatic experience if somebody knew that he wrote that and saw him on campus. He's not producing an inclusive space on campus. He needs to be removed. That's why we have to tear down the statue of whoever. That's why we have to change the name of whatever it happens to be, but not Yale College, even though Yale did whatever he did with the slaves and not Stanford, where Stanford built his fortune by exploiting the Chinese to build the railroads. No, we don't change those names, but we have to change all the other names. We have to tear down Thomas Jefferson because it wouldn't be inclusive. That's why we had to move the rock off of University of Wisconsin's campus at Madison recently. I went hunting for the rock. We eventually, I did not find the rock, but we know where the rock is. If anybody wants the address of the racist rock, I have that. You can go to the racist rock yourself if you're in Madison. It still exists. The story behind that, if you don't know, was that there is a large boulder on the campus named after a geologist. Chamberlain was the guy's name. Chamberlain was not racist. He didn't do any racist things whatsoever. Turns out that a student writing a paper, probably, we don't know the exact story of how it surfaced, was digging through the archives in the library and found a newspaper article from the 1920s where rocks of that particular chemical composition were referred to with the N-word. And because they were, and this fact had now come to light, even though nobody had known it in a century, the rock now made a non-inclusive environment for students of color who might be reminded that people called the rock by the N-word 100 years ago if they found that out. So it's not inclusive. So they paid $50,000 to truck the rock six miles away and park it down by the lake and get rid of it off of campus. That's inclusion in practice. That's what it actually looks like. It looks like sensitivity readers. I know a gay writer who told me he had to have a gay sensitivity reader to make sure he didn't say any anti-gay stuff. This is where you get heckler's vetoes, where somebody's gonna come and give a speech and somebody stands in the back and screams so nobody can hear the speech because it has to be inclusive. You can't bring exclusionary ideas. You have to censor and even pre-censor so nobody will hear them. It's chilled speech, walking on eggshells, etc. The idea is to shut down the platforming of all dissident ideas, pre-censorship and censorship. The goal of that is to move the Overton window so that the unthinkable ideas, so that the unwelcome ideas become unthinkable by people. It is to give cognitive control. You couldn't even possibly think that keeping the rock on Madison's campus is reasonable, that there's an argument for it. It's also the justification for purges, just like they tried to remove um, Bruce Gilley from his job at Portland State and to take away his, his doctorate. Uh, other people have been removed from their jobs and their positions, just like the editorial board of Hypatia and the Tavel Affair was completely purged because it allowed the publication of a, of a case for transracialism. Um, at the, at the end of the day, it becomes a justification for purges. People who transgress against the protected class must be removed so that their ideas can't be pushed in. But this is the basis of entryism. This is how you get them out so that you can bring in people who are compliant, who are gonna fill out a diversity and inclusion statement before they're allowed to be hired and be graded upon that. The rationale, actually, I um, could point out also the, the Othello example that just hit the news, right? Um, those who are reproducing dominant power have to be excluded. This is what inclusion is about. So just now in the news, Othello, a, a professor played the 1965 version of Othello with Laurence Olivier in blackface, playing Othello. And one aggrieved kid on Twitter 
put a tweet that went viral saying, today my, my professor sprung this black face on me, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember the exact phrasing of his tweet, but it boils down to non-inclusive, provoked trauma, blah, blah, blah. And then this has turned into a gigantic storm. If I'm not mistaken, the professor has been removed. He's been purged for showing the Othello from 1965 because Laurence Olivier played Othello in blackface in the film. The reason that they have this line of thinking is that members of dominant groups always reproduce dominant power. No matter how good they try to be allies, their allyship is never good enough. That's, of course, cult talk. We just heard how they believe that the power dynamics erect whoever is the privileged as the default human. Nobody actually thinks this way but them. Men do not think of themselves as the default human anywhere I've ever been in the entire world, maybe outside of extremely old-school patriarchal places, which I actually have not been to in the world. Um, maybe China qualifies. They're still pretty strange in that regard. Um, white people do not think of themselves as the default human with all others to be measured against that as the archetype for humanity. I can tell because I read this definition, city after city after city after city to rooms sometimes of 3,000 people, and literally everybody in there is shocked to hear that that's how they think about race. I've never met somebody who hasn't heard it before, hearing it for the first time, who isn't shocked to hear that that's how they think about race. We just don't think that way. We just don't think that way. Part of that's because whiteness or whatever it happens to be and white privilege are inseparable, as Barbara Applebaum has it in Being White, Being Good, her book about white complicity from 2010, that white privilege is a set of advantages that are not easily renounced. In fact, she says that they cannot really be renounced. And she quotes somebody who says that white people depend on white dominance for the very understanding of their being. That's the way that these people think about being white. This is what leads to segregated caucuses and spaces, like I said. It's the removal of people or statues or rocks, to a, making appeals to safety, and needing space away from the power dynamic, the excuse for entryism. And your commissars are not going to be just called diversity officers, usually officers of diversity and inclusion. They'll probably become uh, officers of anti-racism eventually. So in praxis, we see these purges, the censorship, the segregated spaces. We also hear about terms like, how is it driven? Well, we just heard again and again that it's unconscious, so you have to have unconscious and implicit bias training. None of this is real, of course, but the idea is to get people to realize that they're being racist, thus exclusionary, without knowing that they are, not meaning to be. Therefore, we need more inclusion training where we're gonna drill into you what unconscious bias is, make you very uncomfortable that maybe you're exhibiting it and doing something with it, even though the evidence doesn't bear out that it has tangible impacts uh, for most people who are doing it. But that's how the system works. It's all unconscious. Nobody realizes they're participating in it. The biggest one that people run into are going to be trigger warnings and microaggressions. Kind of, these are hot topics people talked about a lot five years ago. Nobody really talks about them except if you're at work and you have to sit through microaggression training. Um, the idea is that people who are in protected classes need to be warned before they're going to hear offensive material, but even that's not good enough. That's a trigger warning which is a therapeutic term, by the way. And then microaggressions are the idea that tiny little slights and insults build up over time to be a massive weight. Most people don't realize the concept of microaggressions is pretty old. It was actually coined in 1970 by Chester Pierce. He was a Harvard psychologist. He wrote a book in 1970 titled Offensive Mechanisms, the Vehicle for Microaggression. 
And there he described the situation very briefly as one must not look for the gross and obvious, the subtle cumulative, cumulative mini-assault is the substance of today's racism. So he's basically saying, there's not a whole lot of overt racism going on anymore. Where can we find it? Oh, the subtle cumulative mini-assaults. That's where we'll find it. Uh, I've always associated, I didn't realize until quite recently, Chester Pierce was the origin of the term. I've always associated it with Daryl Wing Sue who um, is a critical race theorist and a psychologist. Uh, he came up with the idea, or really advanced the idea, in a series of books in, in two, I guess, first, uh, well, 2010, in, in articles and books that he wrote in 2010. And it, it came up for him on an airplane. He was on one of those flights where the flight attendant comes out and says, could people in these seats move to the back or to the other side of the plane so we can balance the weight? If you've ever had that experience, Sometimes to take off, they have to balance the weight of the aircraft during takeoff and landing. So they asked two people to move, and it turned out to be Daryl Wing Sue, who picked a critical race theorist, big mistake, and another person of color. And so Daryl Wing Sue decided to tell the flight attendant that the choice of people who had to move was racist. And the flight attendant said, no, it's you're in the particular seats that have to move. And she said, it or sorry, he said, Daryl Wing Sue said, it doesn't matter what the intention is, I perceived it as racist, so it was racist. It was a microaggression to choose only people of color. And we perceive microaggressions all day long, every day, and they build up, blah, blah, blah. And you think, Daryl Wing Sue is a nut job. Okay, no big deal. That's a crazy story. Why is this in every training? Um, Daryl Wing Sue was appointed to Bill Clinton's presidential, advisor, presidential advisory board on race in 1996 and served there. Sue's definition... Um, it's from a 2010 article titled My Microaggressions is given also on the Brandeis University site. Microaggressions are the everyday verbal, nonverbal, and environmental slights, snubs, or insults, whether intentional or unintentional, which communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative messages to target persons based solely upon their marginalized group membership. In many cases, these hidden messages may, be, may invalidate the group identity or experiential reality of target persons, demean them on a personal or group level, communicate that they are lesser human beings, suggest that they do not belong with a majority group, threaten and intimidate, or relegate them to inferior status and treatment. E pluribus unum is a microaggression, by the way. Um, the American dream is a microaggression. Uh, meritocracy is a microaggression. Individualism is a microaggression. Saying long time no see is a microaggression, <laughs> if you didn't know that, because it's a direct translation from Chinese. Literally, direct translation of Hao Jiu Bujian, which means long time no see. And so you have this clunky long time no see, sounds cute, but it was derived from listening to the Chinese immigrants speak in the uh, 19th century. So therefore, somebody figured that out, and it's a microaggression. Having a master bathroom is a microaggression, not because the term has anything to do with slavery. It first appeared in a Sears catalog in 1926 or 9, I forget which one. And um, it's actually because somebody thought that it might have something to do with slavery and made a big fuss about it. And then the mythology was born and went wild. So it's a microaggression to refer to master bedrooms or master bathrooms to the point where they've actually been removed from many realty listings and many real estate professional associations forbid the use of the terms master bedroom or master bathroom. It's just silly. Um, you hear this kind of hidden messages. So you need a secret officer to decode this stuff that may invalidate group identity or experiential reality of the, she says target, or he says target groups, but uh, protected classes. Demean them on a personal or group level, communicate their whatever, blah, blah, blah. Suggest that they do not belong with the, the majority group. You have to celebrate them constantly. 
positive affirmation, never insult, never make them uncomfortable. And the them there are people that this theory has decided that other people have decided are inferior because that was true 50 or 100 years ago and really isn't anymore. But they have to keep this alive and reify this so they can use it to try to flip it upside down for their own power. Um, the idea is apparently that these little slights build up and cause uh, significant damage, psychological toil or exhaustion or whatever over time. That can be true if you constantly have to do I mean, we've all, doesn't matter who you are, I'm not going to say that it's equal across like everybody in all groups. People who happen to be in the numerical majority probably have it slightly less than others. We all have this experience where there's some little quirky thing and you have to keep explaining it, keep explaining it, keep explaining it, keep explaining it, and it just drives you nuts that you have to keep explaining the thing. Oh, what accent is that? Where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? You know, and it gets annoying. That's basically what they're trying to expand into a legitimate reason to fire people, is that it gets annoying sometimes. There are three types of microaggressions. I don't really want to drag this stuff out, but uh, micro-assaults, micro-insults, and micro-invalidations. So you can tell that this is just, it's like the epicycle theory isn't epicycly enough, so they need to put epicycles on the epicycles on the epicycles, just so these people have something to do. Um, a micro-assault is intentional. It's a slight little put-down. It's when you throw a little, you don't, you're not overtly racist or overtly whatever, but you throw a little snub to kind of like, you know, it's, you could even have it as misinterpreted too. You're like, you people, blah, blah, blah. Well, what do you mean by you people, right? You know, that could be taken as a micro-assault even if you didn't intend it. But if it turned out that you didn't intend it and could prove that you didn't intend it, then it would be called a micro-insult because it insulted somebody. Uh, racial jokes, by the way, putting up any kind of, fine, like if there's a, a, a swastika or something paint, spray painted as graffiti on the side of a building that the university didn't clean up literally instantaneously and somebody saw it, then that could possibly be considered a micro assault by the university for allowing that thing to have lasted as long as it did. Um, and somebody saw it. Racial jokes are a micro assault. Micro insults would be like saying, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's gay. It's a micro insult. You didn't intend to offend anybody, but it might be offensive to somebody who doesn't like having a negative connotation associated with something. Or you're the whitest black guy I know. That's a micro insult. Saying anything that's consistent with unconscious bias. Like, you know, you ride with Asian women somewhere and you say, wow, we got here. Um, assuming that nurses are female, pilots are male, that kind of thing. Those are micro insults. Micro invalidations fall into actually the category of epistemic exclusion or what they would call, I guess, hermeneutic injustice. <laughs> they have lots of ideas. Uh, it's small exclusions of perspective. You micro-invalidate somebody. So you dismiss marginalized groups' perspective or history. Yeah, 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 the bacon fat and the glacier, I get it. Um, that's a superstition. Micro-invalidation. Saying, I don't see color. Micro-invalidation, because the theory is that color is imposed from the outside, so the person of color doesn't have the luxury not to see color, only white people do. So it's a micro-invalidation of their lived experience of having, to be, uh, having race imposed upon them. Trigger warnings I only really mention because they are an encroachment into the idea of toxic therapeuticity. They're making environments therapeutic. They're bringing in therapy ideas, psychotherapy ideas, into places that they don't belong. That's what's, everything's trauma-informed now. Trauma-informed education, trauma-informed pedagogy, social-emotional learning, constantly necessary. Bring your whole self to work. You don't want to have any part left out. You can actually hear this, 
this therapeutic mindset turning toxic in the Washington State diversity st or equity statement under inclusion and belonging. They write participation or participants express this was with their focus group. Participants expect express the need for safe and inclusive environments, which ensures all employers can go to work and know it is a safe space. I guarantee you, nothing dangerous. Ha they're not going to the federal building in Oklahoma City. They were not walking into the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City in what it was, 1996. That's not what was happening. That's not the safety they're talking about. Participants shared their hope that the Office of Equity can create systems centered on belonging, interconnectedness, and abundance. Like, honestly, what in the world does that mean? One participant said they hoped the office could demonstrate to agencies what it looks like to embody and practice healing-centered approaches that recognize and address racialized trauma. It's all therapy, 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 therapy all the time, but it's being used in such a perverse way that you're actually breaking people down emotionally and mentally, not helping them. And again, this is where you get trauma-informed pedagogy, SEL, rammed into every school, et cetera. You end up with community guidelines. That's a favorite. They're going to set how you can talk on the Slack channel lest you be fired. One of the people you need to trust the least in any organization is whoever takes it upon themselves to define the community guidelines. Because the community is everybody who works there, whether they identify that way or not. We had this back in the day in the New Atheism Movement, which was that there are these people who defined, we are the, well, there's apparently an atheist community, and we all have to behave a particular way. We have to have a community guidelines for the atheist community. There's this huge fight back, back in the day where a lot of people who are atheists were like, I don't want to be a part of a cult. I don't want to be a part of a community. I'm not, I'm just, I just don't believe in God. Just leave me alone. And no, there's a community, and the community has guidelines. And wouldn't it be... Wouldn't it be a surprise for you to find out that the people who uh, decided they were going to define the atheist community and all of its guidelines also called themselves Atheism Plus, where the plus stood for Atheism Plus Social Justice? Because atheism needs a moral code, and they're going to have the guidelines, and they went around policing everybody and eventually destroyed the movement by accusations and constantly criticizing and cutting everything down and making everything toxic. Um, in the end, inclusion actually creates a psychologically hostile working environment, in other words. It empowers grievance, it empowers grifters, it empowers bad actors, it creates tension, everybody's afraid to say the wrong thing because to be inclusive, you can't ever make a mistake because you've excluded something, so then you have to be excluded. It polarizes everything when anything happens because you have to take a side because there is no neutral. It's great for your S score, your social score in ESG. So that's inclusion. What can we say about all of this? I'll just kind of read quickly. Summary, and then we'll do some, how do we reply to this? Just to, I'll read my summary instead of elaborating. To put it simply, the purpose of DEI training mentality and officers is to prepare and polarize the environment, including to generate those fanatics from the hot seat, to establish party-compliant policies, to identify and recruit comrades, install commissars from those fanatics, empower those people, identify and purge dissidents to enable entryism to replace the workforce with a compli ideologically compliant Soviet caste, thus the neo-Sovietization of the organization so that the organization becomes a neo-communist organ. They have a number of names for this, impact capitalism, they'll install an impact officer what are the impacts that your thing is having? So your impact officer is going to analyze the impacts that you're having and make sure you change course. ESG officers, DEI officers, and it's all going to kind of fall under the large umbrella of sustainable development goals. 
they don't, I don't think they have sustainability officers yet, but they're coming, I'm sure. And the goal is ultimately to enforce equity as a contribution toward justice, which is communism in the neo-Marxist way of thinking. So that's what DEI is actually about. What can we say about this? What do we say back? Well, there's a straightforward reply. We've talked about it all week, which is that there's a difference and we can learn to be discerning and disambiguate between diversity, equity, and inclusion and critical diversity, equity, and inclusion. We can disambiguate. That's the obvious, straightforward reply. No, there are two things happening. You have a Mott, you have a Bailey. You have two things happening. We're going to take your Mott away from you. This is what diversity really can do. This is when inclusion is right. This is when equity is reasonable and valuable. And we know what you're doing. Your neo-Marxist garbage is awful. So you steal the Mott and bomb the Bailey. You can do that. That is a straightforward method of reply. Real diversity can be valuable when the perspectives being added are genuinely different and relevant. They're actually functional. Critical diversity perverts this by making it all about identity Marxist critical consciousness. You have to have a race consciousness according to their terms. That's a perversion of diversity. Real inclusion does foster psychological safety. In fact, we shouldn't even call it inclusion. We should just say we should actually generate psychological safety in the environments and then use rigorous research that's probably older than 20 years to define what that means because everything since has probably been poisoned. Critical inclusion perverts this and stands it all on its head, psychological hostility in the environment. Real equity can be sensible because there are legitimate, obvious barriers to access. And people will often, at least there's, a, whether you're conservative or on the liberal side of that issue, there's at least a discussion to have about what the reasonable limit of how much do we accommodate, say, whether it's disability, whether it's that we do something. Well, I mentioned the STRIDE program that very ham-fistedly makes up for differences in outcomes and applications, right? Well, maybe 5% of that or 50% of that is legitimately due to discrimination. There's a discussion to have. Do we use something like affirmative action to make up for the portion that's actually demonstrably discrimination? There are arguments to be had in a robust civic debate about something like real equity. And critical social equity turns this all on its head and perverts it by judging access entirely through the outcomes. If the outcomes are disparate, the access must have been dis disparate. Now we have to change the system. And they change everything that could be valuable. How do we help those in society? How do we take responsibility to enable the maximum access and, and participation in society for, for people? And they turn it into a neo-socialist redistribution scheme that's going to just burn down resources and destroy things. Because that's the activist purpose of DEI. It is to install a party apparatus, a commissariat. Diversity brings them in. Inclusion purges the dissidents. Entryism is the name of that model. And the goal is to render equity a neo-socialist model that is on the way to, by, by communist magic, which turns out to be pretty bad magic, toward neo-communist justice that will be a perfect stateless, classless society where nobody is ever inequitable and it's all spontaneous. In praxis, as they call it, at your institution, this will take the form of primarily obnoxious trainings that are very expensive, that are being held, that lead both to the polarization of your office or your workplace or, or, or organizational environment, the familiarization of ideas with the ideology, and to identify people who are going to participate to the best of their ability in the ideology rather than the goals of the organization. What will happen is that you will have these, the, the environment will be prepared, people will become familiar with the ideas, 
The pre-polarization has occurred at that point. You will have some fanatics that are generated who are going to get brought in eventually as diversity officers or whatever it happens to be, but they're also going to be going around the office. If you remember the military experiment, the fanatics became people who couldn't talk or do talk about anything else or do anything else but look for racial inequality. And they went around looking for it everywhere. You also have some dissidents. You're ready for a polarized environment. Eventually, a precipitating event is going to come in your already extra hostile eggshells environment. Precipitating event might be natural or manu organic or manufactured, and then polarization occurs so that um, people have to argue there is no neutral. Is this really a racist incident or was it not racist? And are we racist? Are they racist? And then it's everybody's racist and you don't care about this and you don't care about that and you're not being inclusive. And it's going to polarize and fracture the environment. In those cases, typically what you end up with is definitely the middle that just wants to show up and work drops out in terms of, I just... I'm not involved, hands up, not my circus, not my monkeys, which is probably a microaggression, um, not participating in this. And the fanatics start to run the show. This is exactly what happened in the New Atheist Movement. The fanatics were running, the broad middle dropped out, and the other people, had the dissidents had nothing they could do because they have more things to do than constantly be the activists to take the thing over. Overt polarization of your organization follows. This is from DEI training in general. Eventually, there will be event, that's where you're going to have your promotion of commissars, purging of some of the dissidents, and you're going to have a raft of new DEI rules put into place to, to manage how you're doing and to make sure you only hire according to the commissariat uh, going forward. And as a result, you will have a less effective business, but that's okay because your ESG score will go up, which means you're probably still going to be net profitable. Because the, the, and that, by the way, is a bubble. That's what we call a bubble. It'll pop eventually. The question is how much it destroys in the meantime while it builds and then what it takes down with it when it pops. Eventually what will happen in those environments is that an internal revolution will launch in earnest and either cannot be stopped and will kill the organization or take it over, one or the other. They don't care which, because in a racist organization destroyed is one destroyed. One captured is an organ for them. Or it will be, put be pushed back upon in time and successfully, in which case you're probably going to have to remove the neo-communists from the organization. Because the only way to stop this is actually to remove them from positions of power, which is to say to fire them all, or to give them reasons to quit. It's like reverse entryism. The only way to stop a DEI colonization of your, a, near, a critical DEI colonization of your workplace is to remove its advocates from positions of power in the workplace. They think only in terms of power. We hear it again and again in their literature. They think only in terms of power. The only way to stop it is to remove them from positions of power, which they will abuse. If you've never heard this before, it's very important. Cancel culture is not this. Removing people from positions of power that they are abusing is not cancel culture. It is taking responsibility because otherwise the thing is going to be perverted, corrupted, or dead. It is taking responsibility to remove them from power. The best thing, of course, is to not let it in in the first place if you have that luxury. So you have to be fastidious, you have to be discerning. When you see it coming at the door, you have to shut the door and not let it in, and you have to take the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that will follow from your stand. Um, some people have done this successfully. Trader Joe's had this whole thing come up, and they withstood. Some people have done this. The bad news is if you've already let it in and you're, a say, a business leader or whatever, you might feel like you're in the teeth of the pinchers because you are. You don't have good options. You are the victim of mid-level violence. 
So do you give in and look weak? Or do you fight back and look like you're overreacting, which is how the PR spin will be turned? Because parents pushing back are domestic terrorists. Don't you see how that works? You were put here, if you're a business leader in that situation, intentionally. The consultants brought this to your workplace to put you in this position, probably eventually to get your job. If I were a fighting sort, I would fight them out before that occurs. You have no good options, however, if you're in that position. Unfortunately, you are painted into a corner. Acting out might cost you everything. Failing to act, however, will also eventually cost you everything unless you are the worst kind of sellout, in which case may you be removed from the position that you are abusing. Strategically, for people who can fight back in the legal realm, those Supreme Court cases have to be attacked. The rulings in those have to be either overturned or refined or nuanced or clarified. The three kind of big issues that have to come up legally from the Supreme Court decisions we discussed are that disparate impact cannot be considered enough for discrimination. We hear in their literature that they're driving further and further and further and further toward if there's outcomes that are different, that's proof of discrimination, civil rights law is on our side. Disparate impact cannot be considered enough. Intention has to be brought back into the question. That's one. In fact, disparate impact it should have such a narrow interpretation as to almost not exist. It's not enough. Secondly, historical, injust historical injustice is not a term that we should be empowering in law for set-asides and for special treatment or exemptions to civil rights law. Historical injustice does not imply present injustice. It's not like Robin D'Angelo described that women couldn't vote and that was a historical injustice. And then after they could vote, that somehow it's just in the fabric of the culture now. And men just accept that that's the default way of it being, and they don't even know they're doing it. Sorry, that's not enough. Historical injustice does not imply present injustice. So historical oppression and marginalization cannot be enough for a perpetual set-aside. That's a second piece of jurisprudence that has to be challenged. Third, identity-conscious hiring, admissions, advancement, etc. in other words, uh, affirmative action, must be extremely narrowly allowed or not allowed at all. Civil rights law should not have protected classes at all. It's not that everybody should be a protected class, it's that civil rights law should be race neutral. It should have always been left race neutral. And the way that you get back to this is by going back to disparate impact being narrowed as maximally as possible, and um, intention being brought back into the situation. We're kind of in a bad place legally until that jurisprudence sees proper challenge. New law has to be done to fix that. We also know that there are beneficial approaches to diversity, equity, inclusion. I've advised not to use their stolen terminology. I would advise you not to have a DEI force at your workplace especially under those terms. Read Woke Inc. by Vivek. He has a model that he wants to introduce to compete with it that will dilute it, that enshrines different values. They don't, you don't have to follow Vivek's model. I don't actually fully agree with it, but if you want to put forth your own set of values, as some of you have expressed to me here, do that. You should be putting forth other values to dilute DEI 
as much as possible because they're, they're, they're terrible. You do have to fight, however, the ESG monster, however you can, because that's the pin holding the cart to the horse for the Cultural Revolution. So do what you can to create an environment where people are aware of ESG if you can't fight back against it directly. Speak up about it if you can't lobby. Lobby if you can lobby. Take the bold move of trying to find other metrics by which value and asset management might be qualified. ESG is the linchpin that's keeping all this going. This is not organic. Read Woke Inc. He's got great suggestions about ESG also. Vivek is doing a really, he's doing the yeoman's work on this particular aspect of it, which I'm glad because I don't have to. Um, we have to start asking questions like whether or not the shift of the stakeholder model, however, violates shareholder fiduciary trust. Vivek raises the question too. The question of what did the bank managers know and when did they know it is relevant. Did they know you were signing a mortgage when they were going to undermine the housing market? What did they know and when did they know it? Did they know when you signed your shareholder agreement that they were going to shift to a stakeholder model? If they did, you have a problem. They have violated, they, that was not a good faith, uh, it was not an agreement signed in bona fide. It's not a good faith agreement. The contract is probably legally actionable. This kind of stuff has to happen to attack it at the legal level. Same thing in schools. We're going to have to see lawsuits. Same things in workplaces. I advise that actually the companies, I try to get every attorney general that I can talk to to hear this, that companies need to be given pathways to sue the fraudulent purveyors of DEI training because what they're selling is snake oil. It is not providing what they advertise it to. It is not lowering their, it's not producing better outcomes. It's not producing uh, a less hostile working environment. Um, and it's not preventing them from having liability against civil rights cases because eventually there are going to be lawsuits in the other direction unless we completely lose everything. So um, it's a fraudulent product. And if employers could sue for the millions of dollars they spent on these bogus trainings, $30,000 an hour to listen to Ibram Kendi rattle at you about stuff that's nonsense, um, that would be one avenue to do some damage. Bankrupt the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry. It's plenty of money, 11-figure industry right now. This will require lawsuits, which requires people willing to sue. Um, my friend in Rhode Island, some of you will know who she is, N Nicole Solis, who's taking on her school system in Rhode Island. Uh, she's a teeny tiny five foot tall fireball, according to the article recently about her. Um, she says you actually have to invite the lawsuit because the law is your most powerful weapon because whoever uses violence first in a liberal society is wrong. So the law is a nonviolent means of resolution to conflict. It's your most powerful nonviolent means of resolution to conflict. Lawsuits are going to be necessary. They won't let go without being bankrupted or sued or forced by a court. They will not let go. A year and a half ago when George Floyd died, everybody's like, oh no, you know, this is terrible. And I said, this will not blow over. And people are like, oh, we gotta wait till it blows over. Because this will not blow over. It's not going to blow over. It's going to have to be pushed back. They're on the march, and in fact, the, the, the people who are doing this have crossed the Rubicon, and they know they've crossed the Rubicon. They know it. There's an article in the New York Times just the other day that actually said that the Democrats are in for a destruction of their party unless they change course very soon. And I, my reaction to this immediately was, in fact, they know that, and they don't care because they know they've crossed the Rubicon, which means they are playing under a set of rules where they think that that must not matter that they have some way to get around the fact that if the normal processes are working, that they're out. In other words, they are playing according to a different set of rules that everybody else hasn't figured out yet. 
That's what happens when you cross the Rubicon. And I assure you, they have crossed it and they know they have crossed it, which means they have one set of options, which is to continue to double down and to increase force until they're either stopped or until the bus grinds to a halt. The wheels are off. I've mixed my metaphors. You didn't know that we crossed Rubicon in a bus, but that's how we do it in 2021. It used to be done on foot and by swimming. <laughs> as for what you can do as an individual, play along as little as, or play along as, as, as much as your circumstances allow, or as little as your circumstances allow, actually, I should say, without destroying yourself. So you don't sacrifice necessarily everything you're doing. You can be subversive. You can throw sand in the gears. You don't have to just storm into the office and start yelling and get blown up. It's not necessarily the best strategy. Do what you can without necessarily sacrificing yourself. What can you do? Because an open war against a machine is usually a losing war, especially if you're not organized and with, with numbers behind you. So what can you do? You can get informed. You can get organized, and then you can take action. So start study groups, start telling people, start talking to people, find other people by asking the question. I can't tell you how valuable it is to be the person who just kind of says, I don't know about all this stuff. Because a bunch of other people think it, and when they hear from somebody else, they're like, oh, another one. And the next thing you know, you're organizing, and the next thing you know, you're like Monster Liberty and have 150 chapters. Another one, another one, another one. Oh, wow, you too, okay. You have to get organized, informed so you know what you're talking about a little bit. You have to get organized. Then you can start taking action. You need to keep in mind that whistleblowing remains the gold currency of the realm. Whistleblowing, these people do not like sunlight. They do not like exposure. They do not want people to know what they're really doing. One whistleblower against Coca-Cola got them at least to publicly change their direction. What they're doing behind closed doors becomes another matter, but they changed direction wildly. One whistleblower against Disney, the most, one of the biggest and most litigious companies on the planet. One whistleblower against Disney and somebody who wouldn't back down with, the, with what, what was being reported. Disney changed its course within a matter of weeks, at least publicly, what's going on behind closed doors. You, you, they do not like sunlight. And then what I, I said, whistleblowing is gold. So one whistleblower, and then they change course publicly, but not inside. That second whistleblower all of a sudden blows the lid on that, and it just becomes a constant retreat for them. They're put on the defensive rather the, than the offensive. So think about whistleblowing. You don't have to risk yourself at all to blow the whistle. You can forward that information to other people who are willing to take the arrow in the forehead because we do it a lot. You also need to find your own personal role. It may be to take it on directly. It may be to, to do the bomb the, or steal the mop, bomb the Bailey linguistic argument game. It might not be any of that. It might be to support people who are taking it on one way or another. I don't care. I'm not a big, I'm not a good businessman. You don't have to financially support me, but please send checks. Um, you don't have to though. There are other ways to support. Take the work and put it into action. I'm doing theoretical stuff. Put it into action that supports me. It makes me believe what I'm doing is worthwhile. That's going to be the case for other people as well. Look at people who are standing up, whether it's, it doesn't have to be new discourses or other people in the room that are doing things. Support things in ways that you can. Maybe it's just that you send a bottle of wine as a thanks. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Maybe it's that you invite people over to dinner. Maybe it's just that you're rebuilding the community around you and in your neighborhood and it has nothing to do with any of it. Maybe you're not taking on DEI or CRT or SEL directly at all whatsoever. Maybe you're going to start trying to put together a means by which we can look at solutions. These 
these, these programs that will dilute the relevance of DEI or SEL or whatever else, an alternative that's better. Maybe you're gonna go out and re remind people what freedom looks like. Maybe you're just gonna be a support network for people who are taking the arrow in the forehead. Whatever it happens to be, you have to find what your role is. The Christians call this, find your gift of the spirit, and you need to lean into it. But you do need to do something. You have to do something productive. Even if it's just pointing people in the direction of people talking about this, that you don't want to do anything yourself or don't understand it. One thing everybody can do, even if they're probably not in one, is lobby the governments of red states to do everything in their power to create islands that keep this stuff out. The last real lever of power that we have, which because of the Tenth Amendment is powerful in the United States, is that the red states could actually outlaw communism outright. How do I know they could do that? Because California outlawed communism outright. It would be very fun if I could somehow get a case into the Supreme Court of California and then point out exactly through the, you know, these arguments that I'm making that, in fact, this woke crap is communism. It's already against the law in California. They just don't recognize it as what it is. Every red state could outlaw communism or even could outlaw wokeness and watch people go berserk. But that is you doing mid-level violence back to them. So you as a normal person, you can actually try to reach out to your state legislature. They're likely to listen. You get up above the state legislature, it gets a bit hard. But you can write to your congressman. You can write to whatever. You want the red states to become islands that are repelling this stuff. Uh, somewhere people can remain free to speak and act and do and organize and prepare and put forth and to resist. But that's all small picture. The big picture stuff is about our nation and Western civilization itself, and that's what we talked about the other night. You have to remember that the best DEI program in the history of mankind has already been running since 1776, and we call it E Pluribus Unum. It doesn't matter. I'm not going like I am all like Americanism or whatever is like kind of an answer philosophy to all this, but uh, you don't have to be American. The idea of True pluralism is the repellent to this, that we can come together across differences into a higher, into a group that has some higher oneness. America is supposed to be many people brought from very many places around the world, a nation of immigrants, as it was called, who become one. Yeah, you're German-American, but you're American. Yeah, you're Puerto Rican-American, but you're American. Yeah, you're Mexican-American, but you're American. Yeah, you're a black American, but you're American on and on and on and on. That forwarding of we're all on the same superordinate identity team is the repellent to something that fractures you, like intersectionality. It creates the American dream, the possibility for it, which is that you can speak your mind and have upward mobility if you work hard. That's basically it. You can have both freedom of speech and freedom to make a living in, uh, at your best of your ability. It's the best diversity program because of the plurality. Multiculturalism was never American and doesn't work. People of all sorts claiming that they're American does work, or that the company man or whatever. It's inclusive through meritocracy, equality, individualism, capitalism, all these things that level the playing field and create a common sensibility. How capitalism, there's an old joke that capitalism only knows one color and it's green, which doesn't work anymore because the stupid hundred's purple. Money is money is money is money. It, levels, it actually levels the playing field. Truth is truth is truth is truth. Your truth, my truth, no, not so much. Truth, the truth, the objective truth at the best that we can approximate it levels the playing field. Universality in science says anybody can do the experiment. You can overturn Einstein as a 
poor whatever kid from whatever village, whatever anywhere that's never had anything as far as a scientific education or anything at all. If you do the experiment and show that he was wrong and you do the experiment right, anybody can do the experiment. That levels the playing field. That's inclusion. Inclusion by meritocracy is inclusion. Why? Whoever can do the job the best gets it. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter where you come from. Can you do it? That's inclusion. That's the best approach to inclusion you can possibly imagine. Individualism is perfect inclusion. You are an individual. I don't have to know another thing about you. I'm going to treat you that way and find out about you one step after another for who you are. That's perfect inclusion. It is already the best inclusion program we've ever come across. And it's also equitable in the meaning that isn't poisonous because it uses merit to create the distribution scheme, which is actually arguably the most fair distribution that you could possibly imagine, especially when we do take into account some actual genuine access problem equity. You know, handicap access is, is, is the easiest understandable example. Some equity policy is actually very valuable. Uh, reasonable, equi reasonable equity is there when there's a blockade to access. So where are we now? We're in a world right now where the, the powers that are enforcing this crap on us know all of this. They also know that the internet has come into the picture and the world has changed fundamentally as a result. And in particular, this allows unprecedented real diversity, equity, and inclusion among people. It allows people to join together in ways that have never been possible, to share information in ways that have never been possible. You can actually, literally, we could all be cartoon dogs on the internet. We have no idea who anybody is sharing ideas. Perfect anonymity could be a thing in certain forums. It is, in 4chan, for example, not to glorify it, but it's possible. And then it's all about the ideas. What this is causing is that the marketplace of ideas we believed that we had, that we heard Herbert Marcuse criticize at the beginning of this lecture, isn't didn't exist and is coming into existence. And the problem with the genuine marketplace of ideas, a genuine capitalist marketplace of ideas, no longer a feudal marketplace of ideas where experts and institutions determine authoritatively what we're going to consider true and false, and journalists and networks tell us what information is true and false, that's feudal estates is what that is. We're now entering into a stage where there's a genuine marketplace of ideas, and the problem is that that can actually solve problems quickly and efficiently, which puts a lot of egg on the face of a lot of experts. COVID-19 policy was a complete catastrophe across the board. The internet was right, confidently right about many things, vitamin D, the many different pharmaceuticals you're not allowed to mention on, if you want to stay on the internet because they're trying to create a new feudal estate through social media. Twitter is going to be a big, big old feudal estate where you can only say what Jack Dorsey thinks is okay to say, etc. COVID policy was a catastrophe. The internet had the right answers in March of 2020 about so much of this. So much of this could have been avoided or gone differently. So much of it. The experts end up looking really bad and stupid, and their power is destabilized as a result of this. The GameStop short squeeze shows that a Reddit thread can outfox Wall Street and destroy a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. The internet is a marketplace of ideas that is going to unleash power in the information economy that the elite power cannot contain. 
They know the writing is on the wall. So they have to set up a new feudal system that prevents people from being able to communicate. So all of a sudden, inclusive language becomes the justification for censorship, et cetera. This whole mechanism rumbles into action through the ESG mechanism so that the technocrats can maintain their power, then the elites can maintain their power over everything. DEI is a tool within ESG to prevent genuine, diverse, and inclusive discussion in a marketplace of ideas that will humiliate the existing experts and power holders, and probably expose in many cases that they're criminals. And so a big part of what's happening with their push is trying to contain that before it deposes them. I don't think, I'm white-pilled as they say, I'm optimistic right now a bit, because I don't think they can stop the fire. I know they have some very dangerous tools, I know they can cause a lot of pain, but without a much bigger calamity than I actually think they would like to trigger, I don't think they can put this fire out. So what do we do? Then we can go party in Miami. You need to broaden your understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion because it's been uh, intentionally hijacked to identity Marxism, so you need, that gives you the ability to disambiguate between critical approaches and other approaches so that you can talk if you want to do the bombing, the Bailey, and stealing the Mott approach. You need to, if you're interested in this kind of thing, contemplate alternatives, but really, what, what do results-oriented approaches to solving similar problems look like, and how can we brand those so that they dilute the DEI industry into irrelevance? How do we do it better? Um, we need to uh, focus our understanding of equity on actually being a quality of access and be very strict about that and not create a circular measurement tool by measuring access through outcomes. We need to adopt a common humanity and common sensibility approach. It was the right answer in the first place. We look for common humanity. We look for places where we have common ground and can have a common sensibility. Your 10 bucks is your 10 bucks and my 10 bucks is the same 10 bucks. That's a common sensibility about money. We need to fight vigorously against this technocratic imposition and implementation of a critical theory monoculture that almost in mockery of us calls itself diverse, equitable, and inclusive when it's actually none of those things. It's the inversion of every single one of them. It is not fair in the terms of what we think equity should mean. It's the opposite of fairness. It's creating a system of privilege. It's not diverse. It is a philosophical monoculture of people who happen to look different and think the same way about everything. It's not inclusive. It is exclusive of everything that it doesn't like. We need to understand, for example, why the e pluribus unum model is already a great answer to this and reproduce that in all the different scales. It doesn't have to be called that. You can appeal to the Americanism or not. You need to have this idea of superordinate identities and coming together to do the job, exactly what Helen got in trouble for, diverse groups doing a common goal in order to do it. Where and when you can, if you have the power or can control the power, you need to petition for or fire DEI, etc. anti-racist activists. Get them off of your school board by showing up and complaining. Get them out of your company. Take the risk. What you also need to do, since you've come here, what I think of this as is I'm, I'm setting a fire in this room, and every one of you has a bit of flame now. You need to go set fires where you go. And those flames need to grow, and you need to gather the tinder, you need to pour on some accelerant, and you need to get those fires to build and build and build until it burns the whole hot mess down. 
So I thank you all for coming to my DEI workshop. I'm gonna end with a message of hope beyond a charge of going to set things on fire, but not literally. <laughs> not literally. You can do it around a campfire if you really wanna build a fire, talk it out. We can push this back. It is possible to push this thing back. Everybody feels like it's very fatalistic. You are at the end of a 50-year, or possibly, depending on how you measure it, 100-year push in which this has had virtually no opposition. The opposition woke up in the past 12 months, and it's already having massive strides. We've already established a beachhead. We've already stormed Omaha Beach and established the Western Front, if we put the World War II metaphor to it. Critical race theory has been nationally branded as extraordinarily unpopular. For example, one year it has become one of the least popular issues. You have thousands or at least hundreds of organizations and chapters of organizations dedicated to pushing back at this. It is possible to push this back. It has never had resistance, and it's very clear they don't know what to do with resistance when they meet it. They go on TV and lie and lie and lie and lie, and every lie is easily seen as a lie now, and every time they lie, it gets more obvious that they're lying. From another strategic point, they wanted to have top-down pressure and bottom-up support so they could squeeze the middle out and pop it like a grape. And we've, we've taken away the bottom. They don't have bottom-up support anymore. So when they push down, what happens is just more and more bricks fall out of the bottom as they push. But there's still bricks. Yes, of course, they haven't pushed them all down yet. But as they push harder, more and more people freak out and fall out. We can push this back. More people than ever know what this is and what's happening, and that knowledge is spreading and growing thanks to people like you. You are doing this. This ideology is unpopular as hell with virtually everybody who actually comes in contact with it and learns what it is. A small contingent, probably no more than 20% of the population, will ever be very positive to it. I think the numbers are worse than that. When I was just in Oklahoma, they did a poll and they found out that there was 24, I think, percent of the the, the survey is staunch Democrat. They basically vote party line Democrat. And then they gave them the critical race theory bill from Oklahoma that was passed against critical race theory. They didn't tell them, what do you think about the anti-critical race theory bill? They said, what do you feel about this idea, which was one of the provisions of the bill? Only 7% supported it. If they had known that it was a progressive tool, they would have been probably like 100% supported it. It is not popular. Everywhere I go, I'm just in California for the Dr. Phil, and I have all these people coming up to me in Los Angeles whispering to me, I'm a huge fan of yours. Everything you say is probably pretty close to right. Don't tell anybody. They don't want anybody else to know. So many of them told me, it's very ironic, but this, anywhere you go, this is extraordinarily unpopular. I went to Oklahoma and I told them they're the most organized state I've ever been to in terms of fighting back on this. I'm very excited to see that. I know there's a lot of organization happening out of this room, so I'm very excited to see that. When I went to California, I've never seen madder people in my life. They might have, through whatever magical powers they used, reinstalled Newsom, but man, are Californians red-pilled and mad. It's possible to push this back. Keep building and spreading the fire to push back. This stuff cannot overcome a person who is strong and principled and discerning. The antidote to communism is strong values and a discerning eye to know the manipulation when you see it. That's literally it. The more people you train to be or help to be principled, 
which might involve having to give them access to some security in case they lose their job or whatever, some support. The more people you can help be principled and courageous, and the more people that you can help to understand this and be discerning, the faster this can be pushed back. Once people realize that it's threatening their children in a very real way, once people realize that it's going to come for their property very soon in a very real way, you will lose your private property. They're working on it, I assure you. People are going to want to fight back. The more people who are informed going into that, the better chance we have of pushing it back. On the other hand, it's also just not sustainable on its own. This is a bubble they're creating. It will eventually pop. It might destroy a lot. Our goal is to minimize how much damage it does and to make sure that we come out of this without going into something like Franco or Pinochet by speaking truth into the truth vacuum, by having a reasonable, normal human perspective without extremes as the answer to this so that people aren't desperately flailing around with other forms of extremism to fight it back. Now, let me just close by telling you again and again, I want to tell people, courage begets courage. Courage begets courage. I watched a video. It was transformational to my life. I watched a little clip about these vaccines or the masks or something in Canada, I think, and there's a deli or a restaurant of some kind, bakery, I don't know. And there are all these people in there waiting, and the health inspector people came in like little tyrants, and everybody was just kind of, you know, going along with it and like quiet, and like looking at the floor and didn't want to make a fuss. And finally, this dude with a beard is like, you need to leave your trespassing. And within seconds, one courageous person spoke up. Within seconds, get out, get out, get out, was being chanted, and the manager came and pushed them to the door gently, not like shoved them. He took them to, led them to the door and had them leave. Courage begot courage. But the other side of that, and this is the more important side of the lesson, is that cowardice begets cowardice. If that guy never spoke up, everybody in there probably would have remained a coward and would have got pushed around by petty tyrants. So you have to choose courage or cowardice. Are you going to be the one who stands up first? Or are you going to find somebody? That's courage. Are you going to find somebody who's standing up and stand up behind them and be the two or three people who finally stand up behind him? Are you going to see a movement or a group of people who are standing in the gap and you're going to help them become many? It doesn't matter how... You don't have to be the bravest person in the room. If you don't want to be the one who takes a stand, get behind somebody who is. If you see a few people taking a stand, join them and make it many. Eventually that grows and call your friends. Come on, this stuff's nuts. Let's back these people up. When it becomes enough, you tip over a school board. When it becomes enough, you tip over a city council. When it becomes enough, you change company policy. That's what you have to do and it's totally possible. Each one of you needs to go start the fire. Use your courage where you think you have it and do exactly that and we can actually push this thing back. We have a very fortunate window that we're in right now. It's actually more fortunate than you think. They're fighting with each other uh, for power. They're squabbling. They're undercutting each other themselves. Now is the moment to stand up and push back vigorously and go out and do it. We can take it on. So thanks for coming again.